Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon Reads A Song of Ice and Fire, episode 142, Catalan 7, In a Storm of Swords, featuring one of our very good friends, Alex. I'm one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. And yes, so excited. I know that we have a... We've hinted and foreshadowed at this guesting <laughs> happening, but here it is. The payoff. I was Hello, uh, away in Winterfell. I went north when you all went east, so it's been a while. I had to backtrack yeah. a little bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. God. Dark wings, dark words, you know, just missing them all. We're so glad to have you here as our companion for this because A, Catelyn Tully Stark, B, you, and uh, C, I'm really going to be sad. And who better to say goodbye to Catelyn with than you? So tell everyone where they can find you on the internet and tell us what's going on with you lately. Hello, everyone. My name's Alex. I use they, them pronouns, and I'm so excited to be a girl gone canon or a they gone canon whichever. You can find me on the interwebs lurking around mostly uh, Parallax, P-A-R-R-A-L-E-X, 0889, on your Twitters and such. I'm a happy member of the GGC Discord, yelling with the girls about the things, just having a good uh, gale time as we as we sometimes <laughs> ignore all the things y'all say in favor of our own interpretations, but you know. Um, so yeah, I'm super excited to be here. Kat, became one of my favorite characters in the series and just seeing what her role is and like the way the fandom discusses her. I was actively emailing you all throughout the year about certain things <laughs> and just really happy to be able to kind of close out this chapter or this capture, but you know, not the last Ooh, there's, there's nine lives. There's fired. nine lives. Uh, my first fire. Cool. I think it was like what a minute in nice new record, new record. <laughs> It's okay. I'm HR now. I'm I'm HR today, and I can protect oh, your employment. Thank you. Oh, or I'm or not. I don't know if that I don't know if that's what HR fire, even does. Right? HR doesn't <laughs> protect anyone anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, yes. And all those emails, we are going to see the culmination of some of those thoughts. I think I'm excited to see that manifest here today. I've had so, some hot yeah. takes, some silly takes, some great takes. They're all great, but. <laughs> They yeah. are all great. And I mean, like, you know, we need hot takes here because how else are we going to bring Kat back without that? We need the fire. fire. We need the fire. Yeah. <laughs> the fire of R'hllor, that flame. Getting and fired. I think that's fired. truly. Hmm. Yeah, you're getting fired. So, I mean, well, I think you've already brought the flame within uh, your first Alex? several minutes. But Eliana's here to resurrect you, as she said. <laughs> As she said, she's HR apparently. <laughs> interesting role. Interesting role. I'll be considering know. my own role. Maybe this is some succession shit, but I will be considering my own role in the company. Eliana, you'll be hearing from my cat lawyers. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm glad that Alex is here as our witness for my cat lawyers, but let's do some housekeeping real quick before we get into the episode. First things first, Patreon episode this month for our Stranger Tier and above patrons is going to be about the creatures and spirits in His Dark Materials. I'm so excited. If you didn't know, we cover His Dark Materials, the main trilogy. We are in the Amber Spyglass. We are getting in the middle of things. We are past the halfway point. Come hang out and listen wow. to that. Check out that series. 
But this episode will... Yeah, that's sad, too. There's a lot of sad... It gets sadder. It all gets sadder, Eliana. What do you want It's a sad time of the year. Uh, It is, actually. It is a sad time of the year. All the daylight's fading. You know, we are going from summer into autumn into winter, and... Winter's coming. When... And yeah, so we do also cover historic materials and next week will be something of like, I guess the last week of October, it will be our coverage of historic materials, the Amber Spyglass. But as Chloe said, we cover the main series, but we also do have our coverage of La Belle Sauvage, one of the the prequel books out there if people want to check that out. And yeah, along with our bonus episodes every month, patrons do also... If you are a patron in the Thunder tier or above, have access to the Discord, as Alex has wonderfully already plugged. I'm trying to get ass backed, okay? So I'll, I'll, I'm a shell. I'll be a corporate shell. Have <laughs> <laughs> me back. Have me back. <laughs> uh, no, I, I'm I'm so happy you're here to shill for us on this, Alex. Thank you. Uh- <laughs> yes, being a Patreon subscriber to Girls Got Canon has really improved my life in so many ways. Let's count the benefits. <laughs> Oh my god, Alex, ten Alex ways. Is, we did not ask Alex to shout a word, alright? There's not, like, we Sword. don't have Alex at, like, knife point or anything, alright? <laughs> Alex is not no bargaining oaths. for their no life oaths. right now. God. Um, well, no, we are having a really fun, scary, creepy, crawly, there's not really going to be anything scary, it's going to be ridiculous, a ludicrous brunch this month on October 30th. We do brunch slash happy hour with patrons in the Thunder tier and above at our Discord. Uh, we do games, giveaways, get to know yous, and this month is going to be a Halloween party, right? And I'm very pro-costume. I'm very, like, I hope you're going to dress up. I can't I can't mandate it, you know, works. Some works are like, no Halloween. I'm just going to say I'm very pro-Halloween on the old Discord. Yeah. I'm just pro-Halloween. I remember one time people were like, yeah, people totally dress up for Halloween at work, and then I showed up dressed up. This was the year that you and I, somehow without even knowing each other, both dressed up as Louise from Bob's Burgers. Oh, yes, yes. And it was just fucking me in a costume. And I was like, great, thanks, everyone. Just tugging off the ears, you know, hiding them behind your back. Oh, this is good. No, it, I just it's, uh, it. it reminds me of, God, what was it? Someone was dressed up as Spider-Man in some sitcom. I wish I remember. Was it Dan Egan? No, I'm making this up. Anyways, maybe there's one. I just don't remember what it was. I've I've been watching a lot of sitcoms lately. I mean, Halloween is a very important gay holiday, and I know the girls mm. and gays and theys gone canon are probably looking forward to it. We haven't discussed this, but I just assume through like the gay network that you know somebody might turn a look <laughs> or two. The gaywood.net. Yeah, the gaywood the network. Net, you know. Mm. Yeah. Well. I think dressing up is optimal, you know, it, it's it's preferred, so yeah. um, to have fun, and you don't ever have to have your webcam on during these, but it is fun, it's a fun time, and it'll be from 1 to 3 p.m. Eliana time, you know, Eastern time, oh my God. so yeah. jot that down, yeah. Eastern time, it'll be 1 to 3 p.m., so your evening plans don't have to be interrupted, and I think there's a couple treats and tricks that are going to be up for grabs. So here's the leg of lamb. Here's the leg of lamb portion of what I have brought all of you. And it is. Oh, it's juicy. It is juicy. It is the moment many of you have been waiting for our next POV. Should we let Alex do the honors or? 
No? Alex. I I think you're very honorable, like this next POV, Alex. So what do you think? Could you tell us what the next POV is? Can you announce it? The next POV that GGC is covering, blonde, eyes that are not brown, spins time (laughs) in King's Landing. (laughs) Has a lion sigil item on their person. (laughs) The The only word, Alex yelled. (laughs) The the, the next POV is Brienne of Tarth, the main of Tarth, um, the the blue knight of Rinley's Rainbow Guard. After I took some time to emotionally recover, I was very excited. I found my excitement because I do really enjoy Brienne as a POV. I definitely she does make a lot of sense following Kat for just like these themes of like duty and like your place in this world. So I'm really looking forward to see what you all uh, just make of it. So yeah, the next POV is Brienne. So bring me shippers if you're out there. <laughs> you might have some more Jamie interactions coming up. I don't know. Who knows? Some morsels. Some morsels are in your Some morsels, yeah. Some sprinkles. Uh, And then I hear that there might even be an intersection with our present POV. Perhaps somehow may work its way in. Who knows? Time will tell. Allegedly. 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 Allegedly someone's wandering around the Riverlands doing that. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know, though. Uh, We'll Uh, see. I think that will be so fun. For a second, I thought Alex Alex was going to... Red Wedding. <laughs> I thought about it, but then Chloe <laughs> called on she called on my honor. And then on my <laughs> honor as a Tully fan, oh. all my honor as a Stark fan. Oh. I couldn't I couldn't do it, oh. but you know, the you Moon's Eye plan is still in place. I might still try to like, subtly <laughs> subtly work in Cersei as the next oh POV. God. We'll see, we'll see. We'll, we're workshopping things, we're workshopping things. <laughs> Do you yeah, even need is... like that intricate? Do you even need need like all of that? You could just pull like one of the shuringans, right? Yeah, like, actually, I if just... I could just go to the dock right now and just write in Cersei, <laughs> it has to happen, right? Like that's how it works, right? <laughs> uh, mayhaps. 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 Oh my god! Uh, I should have said mayhaps in the intro. I'm a bad fray. Which but actually Simon a good didn't thing, say. So I'm excited. I'm excited that I'm a bad uh, fray. Uh, well, I'm well, afraid. Oh my god. Uh, I thought I had something there, but not quite like that. Yeah, I'm really excited for Brienne, though. I I am a noted Brienne chill myself. I really do favor Brienne. And we have have some really exciting guests. We have a handful of guests coming on for Brienne that I I know we're going to get hyped about. But our first episode for Brienne, just to tide you over with even more morsels, especially for the Cersei clan here that didn't get quite their wishes, you know, but it'll come for you one day. Your princess Hair grows will come, back okay? and so does Cersei as back. a POV. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry that we let you down. I know there were some people thought there were hints. They thought they saw red flags. They Cassandra'd it. There's still hope for you, but there the morsels was, there was for quite now. A there was a Cersei of Cersei. Uh, <laughs> a Cersei of Cersei. A of Cersei. Oh, God. <laughs> Oh god. We tried to like just incorporate that and we because we knew we were gonna let people down. We tried to incorporate a lot of that and just sprinkle it in. Oh, it was masterful y'all dicking us over for how many ever weeks. It was great. <laughs> Cause it was just like, I man, mean, so many Cersei mentions, like the parallels are paralleling, like this is gonna be so good. And then, you know, the boom 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 of the drums. <laughs> we tried to give you something to tie y'all over. So. <laughs> yeah. We tried. But, you know, 
I'm excited because our first Brienne episode, back to back, we're going to have another friend and patron, Shiloh Carroll, author of Medievalism in a Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones, and The Woman Fantastic in Contemporary American Media Culture, on to talk about Brienne, to introduce Brienne to the world, to the to the canon world. We're canonizing it. So I'm excited to have Shiloh on. It's going to be just two back-to-back great A Song of Ice and Fire episodes with Alex today and Shiloh then. woo I will keep the another one of your guest host seats worn for you, Shiloh. Can't wait to see what you do. <laughs> and so before then, let's talk a little bit about our emails and tweets of note. We saved this one, you know, because we wanted to make sure that we, we got it in here more towards the end. And we got a message from our friend Bela Breakwind saying, hey, fam. I finally caught up to the most recent episode and had a quick thought regarding Jane Westerling and her multiple and tearful goodbyes to Rob. We're being attacked right at the start of this message. As we all know, Jane's great-grandmother is Maggie the Frog, aka the Woods Witch, from the East with the ability to foretell futures. Do you think it's possible that Jane foresaw tragedy at the Twins before Rob and company had even left? I'm unsure if the familial connection between Jane and Maggie is some forgotten gardening, or if it will mean something come the winds of winter. But regardless, I thought it was worth pointing out. I'd love to see what you all think. I really love this, and I guess I might not have been thinking outside of the box, right? So like reading this made me think outside of the box and there's a lot in that right like thinking of maggie the frog and the prophetic connections and that bloodline being magical and i'm no bloodline magic fantasy expert i just like what i like you know i give what i can here (laughs) I, i do what i can in the face of what i got yeah but you know there's a lot of theorizing on the internet that goes around about like the blackwood and targaryen line like Brynden Rivers with a Blackwood mother and a Targaryen father, Blackwood Starks, right? The the Blackwoods used to live in the Wolfswood, so there's possible magic blood there. And also the Went line, Alex and I were just talking about through the Tullys, right? Like even back to Danielle Lothstead and how Sansa and Catelyn and some of these characters from that line are looked at. Yeah, it seems that in like George's kind of cast of characters he does really like the idea of just like there's just magic inherent in certain bloodlines and yeah when you brought up the maggie the frog connection i mean i'd kind of just forgotten about it just that that westerling connection there but what if you know again like there was you know it skipped a generation and she had a her first awakening or whatever um i did guess that it was through contact with rob <laughs> the the magic stark sperm awakened something in her and i don't know, I don't know. we'll <laughs> see we'll see if that comes to pass but whatever but but yeah this it's it's kind of it's just consistent in the world building that certain bloodlines certain families especially they they have these dreams these prophecies these uh forewarnings of, of whatnot so i definitely think if you're not looking closely you could just think jane she's sad she's young she wants to be with Rob. That's why she keeps going after them. But what if there is something else a little bit there? So yeah, I I wonder because Jane is one of the people that we guess we might see in the prologue of Wins, if maybe there'll be something more concrete there. I think that could be really interesting. You know, maybe she wakes up from a dream and I don't know. 
it would also explain a lot of her like that that really fierce loyalty we see Jane exhibit in Rob even after his death in Jamie's POV, huh. right? Mm-hmm. Looking all the way back to those chapters so long ago when they occurred. But uh, there's almost something to that. Like, she's very willful, right? Which is almost, I mean, think of Liana and Rhaegar and how willful Liana was to run away with Rhaegar. The idea of prophecy with Rhaegar, right? And that he probably had some prophecies guiding him, especially some contact with his uncle Aemon. Thinking of those kind of magical connections that run in those lines and those prophecies, I could see that for Jane, like those chestnut curls and her being the young queen of the rebellion and her maybe having some prophetic visions or connection with those visions. That could be a thing. I like it. I like it as a theory. I'm hungry for theories. I'm hungry for Aeswaf. I'm hungry for eating. I want to eat good so bad. I want Wow. So I like it. Until I get a POV that shows me it. Yeah, it adds a certain even more tragic element to Jane and Rob, right? Like if Jane did have prophecies, if she did kind of because they only knew each other for a short in-world time. But again, if she had these prophecies, she had these dreams, if she just had this magical connection to know Rob more intimately than the intimacy they did know, um, that could be why she was just so attached to him and, and wanted to stay by his side. Yeah, and yeah. when you think about like the baby being made out of these connections too, right? Like you think of the stark magical bloodline coming together and even like if they made a baby that would, could be a magical baby, but what we do have is Edmir with that went bloodline still with Roslyn, right? So who knows, yeah. maybe they could have a little seer puppy themselves. Guppy? Seer Guppy? <laughs> Seer Guppy. The all-seeing oh. fish. Because you have, like, <laughs> Wint. Well, on the Edmure side, he doesn't have the Stark side, but you do have that Wint connection. And then on the Jane side, she, her child would have Wint, Stark as well. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's magic in the air. <laughs> wow. You could really have some powerhouses, you know? Like, those two cousins could grow up if they... This is a what if. Yeah. Oh my god, this is our Marvel what if a swap episode. But that child and that child oh could grow up, join their houses, but Generis would happen. Wait, just keep keep with me. <laughs> I'm so sorry for who I am, but uh Generis could then happen and have their boat baby child finally, right? And that child and one of the children would fall in love and break the pact, and that would be Rebellion 3.0, baby. Yeah. I wrote the, tr- they- the trilogy sequel series, so you're all welcome. So another 16 books. A they bunch of brunches. There. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Isn't that just the kettle calling the kettle black? Wait. All right. <laughs> I love that email. Thank you, Bela Breakwind, over on Twitter for sending us that. That was a fun thought. Ex- I... I'm like a noted hater of what if scenarios. I, I feel like we've talked about this in the past, but Have I'm a we? noted hater. I just <laughs> feel like it's just such a waste of time. I'm very, I'm actually very Stannis about it. I know y'all think oh. that I'm the worst for hating him, but I'm actually him. Maybe that explains it, right? Because I'm wow. out here like, wow. what if there's no what if there's only reality? Proudwing. And. I've got one one if that I want to float because I do feel George is kind of 
I can I can work it into the uh, into the episode later, but I do feel you on that. Yeah. Like, what if it's kind of going in the direction of crack ship, where it's like it might give you an interesting lens on something that you haven't thought about before, but ultimately it's just like more of a fan exercise than like a text analysis reaction. And so, yeah, I do right. see you on that. I do think there's this one kind of through line that George weaves in through the cat POV to kind of hint at his own internal what if, but just doesn't come to manifest or yet. So spoilers, keep listening. Okay, okay. okay. I was like, that's foreshadowing. What, what is the what if? I was waiting for the what if, and then oh, not yet, Eliana. You no, have to wait. Yet. You gotta wait. You have Alex, to subscribe to the GGC Patreon, and then you can unlock the spoilers yeah. at the beginning of the oh episode. Oh my god, that's one of no. the perks I get. Have I not <laughs> Alex is now enough? behind the paywall <laughs> in my life. Yeah, yeah. wow, we're being red wedding. Here. <laughs> you have one red wedding paywall visit available to you. Uh, yeah. But you do like more, Alex. you know, secretly taking taking it all over because the freeze don't. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Well, Alex, we are so glad to talk about magic with you, and now we get to talk about some further magic. We're gonna do a lightning round. You you know the lightning rounds. You know what I'm talking about. I may have brought my umbrella. I'm familiar, but. Wow, your raincoat, your umbrella, your galoshes. Yes, yes, galoshes. yes. Okay. Fashion. Fashion, fashion, fashion. Fashion. Good. Well, we're going to rain down on you with this lightning round. And first, we'll start with Arya 10. Arya and Sandor arrive at and flee from the twins, where something has gone terribly, horribly awfully dismayingly wrong and that brings us to the cat seven overview we're going to a wedding y'all it's gonna be great no problems we're gonna have a wedding then go fight the ironborn and then peace stark riverland eternia oh no we're going home that's that's it we're going home well, yeah, so so let's do it. Let's start that journey. The chapter opens. The drums were pounding, 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 and her head with them. Pipes wailed and flutes trailed from the musician's gallery at the foot of the hall. Fiddles screeched, horns blew, the skin scurled a lively tune, but the drumming drove them all. The sounds echoed off the rafters, whilst the guests ate drank and shouted at one another below. Walder Frey must be deaf as a stone to call this music. Stone ears? So. Stone ears, oh. <laughs> oh. Stoneheart? Stoneheart Stone ears. Stone ears foreshadowing? Stone ears. What else do we got? Yeah. <laughs> Grayscale when? Obviously, you know, these are amongst the most iconic of the chapter openings, not least because of what is going to happen in this chapter. And I, I just love... What? Nothing nothing <laughs> bad happens. Don't worry. It's going to be fun. Um, I love how George uses repetition throughout this book to really just show that, you know, things are not going well, right? Here we have that pounding used over and over again to convey that sense of noise. It also becomes like a sort of onomatopoeia in and of itself and shows that things are amiss. And it reminds me a little of Sam one, a storm of swords of sobbing. Sam took another step and how that gets repeated throughout the opening of that chapter. And besides all of that, the other language, right, is showing us how terrible the music is. And 
that emphasis on the drumming and how it drives everything serves as a signal of what's to come, right? Not only are we like you like, uh-huh, weird that the music is so bad because it turns out they don't they're not musicians, they're just archers, but it's also I think showing us how yeah, Catelyn says that weddings are not battles, which debatable because if I'm not mistaken, I think it was Cersei who described her marriage as one. Um might have been someone else, but also this isn't really a battle, it is more of a slaughter, but the drums give that same sense of of foreboding violence regardless, right? It's what you hear when you're on the battlefield getting you amped to fight. Mm. And how you send out, I guess, orders. Allegedly. I'm not a... Yeah. I'm not a soldier. <laughs> I think that's... That outline and, like, that thought, there's something as we go along, especially with the music, right? Like, the music, especially because the music's awful... Like, there's no good beat going on up there, as we're about to learn. Uh, there's no good beat going on anywhere in this building. It's avant-garde. But, avant-garde. But when you think about, especially with George's background, right, how he, he loves screenplay and he, he wrote for TV for so much, he want, that's all he wanted, right? Like, all he wanted was TV writing. And then he was like, fine, I'll just be an epic fantasy writer instead. Then sell it to TV. So, <laughs> there's our problems. Um... There's a rhythm, right? Like, you you hear it, and if this was on TV, not in Game of Thrones, like a different version of Game of Thrones, an alternate what-if universe, you can almost hear the heartbeat to the drum, right? Mm. Like, just Kat, yeah. like, you're in her mind, you're watching things around you, and the drum is the same thing as her heartbeat, which is, like, facilitating the blood pumping as she's thinking, and the thoughts are filling her head, and she's just, like, conceiving, perceiving, and she's dissociating, right? Like, yes, girl, get it. Uh, to everything going on around her, it's so much. Yeah, like, the... It's exhausting. The sensory details are just phenomenal in this, right? And... Especially if we come back to like the pounding, you can just think about like when you're afraid, you can hear your blood pounding in your ears mm. and she's talking about the pounding in her yeah. head. So you really do get the sense that regardless of what else is poorly happening around her, that the real drumming is like in her head. There's just this boom, boom, yeah. boom, boom, boom. As uh, again, like you mentioned, like you just said, like she's perceiving so much. And, and that idea of it being her heartbeat that yeah. would come so through before her stone heart stops beating. But I, I do want to point out, you know, you were talking about how George ended up writing for TV, but this wasn't on TV. It's HBO. <laughs> oh my god. It's oh an experience. God. Better than TV. Uh, it's not my TV. God. It's HBO. <laughs> you know what else was not on TV was Jingle Bell dancing mm, to a very true. poor rendition true. of the song Alisan. Yes, like the cat, like the queen. While rain falls outside of the twins, Catelyn's watching that, and outside it's cold, but inside there's a fire roaring, and the heat of the bodies is coming from the wedding guests as well, who are packed in like sardines. Cat is between Ryman and Roos, and had smelled both of them. Ryman drank by the barrel and sweated it out. He bathed in lemon water, which was apparent, but no lemon could mask that scent, thinks Cat. Roos was sweeter, but no more pleasant. He drinks hypocrites in preference to mead, and he eats only little. Very smart, that Roos. Catelyn, in full, notices their scents, and it reminds me a lot of Sansa when she thought about Lady and how Lady could smell out a lie, but now she can't. 
And I know Catelyn's not directly connected with the wolves, though she seems to be, right? Especially with Summer, when we think about her and Bran and Summer. And Summer and her having that fierce protection of Bran and understanding with each other. But Lady could smell out a lie, and Catelyn notices their scents, and she almost smells out their lie, right? Almost. Yeah, and then specifically about the wolves, she did have those couple moments with Grey Wind. Right? Like, she mm-hmm. was able to be closer to Grey Wind than she was with Rob, which kind of just makes even the more sad in the last couple of chapters where Grey Wind is just more standing for Rob's aggression, so Grey Wind's against her. But yeah, that, that cat-wolf connection has definitely been something there. And then something that mm-hmm. I wrote that I just wanted to just introduce here, because it was something that I wasn't aware of until kind of mid my uh, Song of Ice and Fire fan life, um, but Roos Cat as a ship. And a lot of the Roos Cat moments, well, I mean, they only interact a few times, so most of them are happening here with just, you know, Roos smells sweeter, but he's no more pleasant. And one of the tenets of Roos Cat that I've seen uh, is saying that Roos Cat is this, and this isn't what I was talking about earlier, but if Cat was going down this path of being towards more vengeance that didn't lead to Stoneheart, so if she had somehow survived the Red Wedding, as was the plan... Would she and Roos have some sort of alliance? Would her own kind of more bloodthirsty ways be attractive to him if he could have attraction and wasn't just like some weird vampire man? But yeah, like little oh. seeds of Roos cat. I'm not going to say sprinkled here because it's not going to happen, but just the Roos Catalan interactions that even made it to the reverse adaptation of the show that these books are based off of. Um, Roos cat was always just kind of like <laughs> an interesting pairing. The tension. It is an interesting idea, right? Like, on one hand, I thought you were going to say that people uh, put it forward in terms of, like, a hate fuck, which uh, very, very pro-hate fucks on this podcast. But I think mm-hmm. it, it makes sense, like, what, what you're saying, because I think there are, like, similarities, especially in terms of where Kat's story goes, right? The way that they speak so quietly and silently mm-hmm. and that Kat suddenly becomes so very quiet and this sort of undead aspect running between the way both of them are written. For for Roos, it's more literary, but for Kat, it's more... Trauma-enforced. Yeah, and, and literal mm-hmm. by the end, but yeah. 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 So I, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I mean, Roos Cat definitely could be a hate-fuck ship, but then also just, again, like this exploration of Kat's character growth change um, to where she does yeah. have some of these more qualities. And then Roos himself is very much thought of as like an anti-Ned figure. Because on the outside, mm. you know, they both seem so cold, so northern. But whereas Ned mm. does have a heart and, you know, isn't actually a caring person. And Roos is the Roos. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, <laughs> just this kind of like, again, this, this crack ship, this what if. But yeah, just yeah. seeing like if, because again, we do know that Kat was supposed to survive the Red Wedding. So like, what was the plan? Was she going to just stay yeah. with the twins? Was she supposed to go up north? And then when I was talking to Rowan, I was like, what if there's just like some scenario where like, Roos is just, again, playing some ridiculous game because Roos plays games with people where he, like, obfuscates his role in the Red Wedding and then kind of comes to Kat's like, I'll get you back north. And, you know, then Kat's part of his, like, I'm going to use her to uh, tighten my grip on the north, right? Because I have the, they couldn't go with the Arya plan at that. But, you know, that could be, like, part of that ploy, right? So it's like, I could either have the fake daughter or I could have the real mother. So, again, this is a crack ship a slight what if but i do think these interactions i i think these character beats are more than just to kind of make it more personal but maybe just a way to show just like there's this element of chance 
about the Red Wedding specifically mm-hmm. and, and Rusa's yeah. kind of role as a political person on here that's always just like, hey, I'm just kind of keeping these options open, like maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also, mm-hmm. it, it makes a parallel then between him and Ramsay in a way, right? That he's maybe like Lady Hornwooding. Yeah. 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 Cat and using using that uh, claim. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, like Sansa, right? Like a claim like Sansa's for once. That could be used. That could be definitely be exploited there. First hot take of the day, Roos Cat. Roos Cat. Interesting. Interesting. No, I, I like it. There's a tension. There's a chilling tension. It could be a weird, scared, horrible time. Or it could be very much like the Roos teaches Cat how to be evil, right? Like... Yeah, let me, oh. let me show you the ways <laughs> of the Corruption dark. kink. Corruption yeah, you know? kink, they yeah. call it. Interesting. I see you. Okay. I will say uh, the, the the line about um, Ruth smelling sweet did stand out because it reminded me also of... Uh, there was an analysis that, that was really good a few years ago on our uh, swath uh, talking about how sweetness is used and that sweetness is sort of associated with death, right? Because yeah, the sweetness from the rose, yeah, a, cloy- a cloying sweetness, mm-hmm. the sweetness of the rose, the blue rose growing from the wall. And then also that Tywin's body as it's rotting is kind of described as like sickly sweet, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. So, mm-hmm. and how it becomes associated with Cersei's- The sentence so. Seneschal. Yeah. Yazin, the other so. guy on the asos- yeah. associated with sweet. Yeah. Yeah, sweet, literally sweet. The uh, the flavor. Yeah, yes. yeah. That's interesting. That's really interesting. All right. So because this isn't a Song of Ice and Fire podcast, but also a food our podcast, podcast, a food uh, podcast. Yeah, this is part of the Food Network a podcast. Oh no, um, the Browns, gonna- <laughs> a Song of Ice and Fire. <laughs> We're gonna talk about yeah. Uh, the food, of course, which starts out with a thin leek soup, which leek soups can be good, but apparently this one was not. And a salad of green beans, onions, and beets, which I feel like those could be good if you added some leaves in there, but just those together, I'm like, that's weird. I see why that was weird. And also the river pike poached in almond milk. And then the mounds of cold mashed turnips, the jellied calves brains, and then what we get what's called like a a lesh of stringy beef and that was really <sighs> difficult to understand like because i know the word lesh like spelled that way as leche meaning milk in spanish but that is not what this was apparently lesh just means like a, a sliver or a slice so it's a slice of stringy beef Ugh. yeah it's not good right like calves brains stringy beef it's not yeah. the best. They've given no. us better. George has given us better. I mean, Cat does say like you know this is insulting fare to put before a king, right? Like they're they're yeah. telegraphing hard. <laughs> they are telegraphing hard. Yeah, it is hard because not- she underlines every single event, and she's like, "Oh, that was an insult. Oh, yeah. that was an insult." But like, there's no exit. This is an IKEA baby and a hell IKEA. You know, this is like one way out, death. You think they're just being insulting, right? Because of the pride thing. But turns out it's because they just like didn't want to spend money. Why, why spend money on the guests who are going to die? You know, what's yeah. the point? They're not going to remember yeah. it. Because they'll be dead. Don't don't bring out the good casks. Uh, no, no, no. Don't bring the good casks out now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but Lady Stoneheart is like me. Like, she remembers, right? She don't speak. 
but she drinks. No, I'm just kidding. She uh, drinks and she drinks and she remembers things. She drinks <laughs> and she remembers things. Yo, that that's a shirt idea. Oh, Alex, yeah, that, that is, is a straight up you. I paraphrased period. Up. Ew, I feel icky. <laughs> but like with some skeleton hands on the boobs. Okay, like I think I'm that could be a, that's a shirt idea. Now I don't, yeah, anyways, our people, aka could the cats, will be talking to your people, aka you. Uh, ooh, a turtleneck, an Aswaf turtle. Yeah, so neck. you can have like, I feel it. you can have like a bejeweled like line here along the neck or like. Oh. Red beads oh. along here. Actually, this is a really good idea. Yeah. This is actually Jot starting to become a really good idea. When you edit this, Eliana, girls yeah. got merch. Take, take <laughs> it out. We got to take it out so no one steals our, my like Simone Roca uh, stolen idea. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, besides Catalin knowing this food is garbage, Rob eats it uncomplaining, like he swore he would, and Edmir is too busy with his bride stealing kisses, to care about food. Catalan thinks, You would never guess Edmir complained of Rosalind all the way from River Run to the Twins. Husband and wife ate from a single plate, drank from a single cup, exchanged chaste kisses between sips. Most of the dishes Edmir waved away. She could not blame him for that. She remembered very little of the food served at her own wedding feast. Did I even taste it? or spend the whole time gazing at Ned's face, wondering who he was. Poor Rosalind's smile had a fixed quality to it, as if someone had sewn it onto her face. Well, she's a maid wed, but the bedding's yet to come. No doubt she's as terrified as I was. So one of the things I did want to talk about that I almost don't want to talk about um, is, is Edmure and this sibling dynamic. But as you're reading that, Chloe, I really was just thinking like, what the fuck is Rosalind thinking? Like, what was she told? Like, what were those, you know, wedding prep? Like, that that's something to think about. But I did want to talk about the sibling dynamic as I see House Tully. Just again, because we we do talk about it, the Girls Gone Canon Patreon supporters in the Discord, a lot about just like sibling dynamics and what we see there. And I do think this is just a really interesting part of the uh, of the five book series that we get. Because as I was like thinking about this, like House Tully is one of the most prominently featured houses that we interact with. You know, like at times they're third or fourth most prominent and like Riverrun itself is a place that we do spend a lot of time in. But like this sibling dynamic between Kat, Edmure and Liza, I do think it's both in series and in fandom kind of underserved or underlooked at. And uh, during the Kat's POV, she interacts with both of her siblings uh, and just for context sakes, like I'm a, an eldest of three siblings, so I'm naturally predisposed to take Kat's position in this. And I do see a lot of that in her interactions as being the eldest. But there's just such an interesting way that both Edmir and Liza interact with Kat that just is just rife of just like siblingisms and, and how they interact. And that just kind of constant. It seems like they're both in the present, but always in the past with each other where it's like, well, I, I'm Lord of uh, River One now. And there's like, no, you're not, because dad's still alive. So you still have to do what I say because I'm older than you. And it's like, well, not for long. And then Liza herself is just very much like um, on Kat's side in some moments, but just turning against her, just like that precarious nature of siblings. And something that I'm like sadly hopeful for in like a kind of morbid way is I do really want to get Edmure talking about his sisters and Tiwao, because from his perspective, mm. 
in a couple of months, he loses his dad, eldest sister, and older sister. And I mean, I, I guess Liza's death would eventually kind of become known to the realm, but it's again, it's like, what the fuck does Edmir think about this, right? Like, that's three very important people to you, like all murder, well, Hosser died naturally. Um, but again, like, you know, uh, three very important people died and obviously when we do interact with him afterwards you know he's he has other things to think about so that's why i'm hoping if we do get at least a couple of scenes with edmir and tiwow that he talks about this because something that as a cat stand i've always been very particular about is just like i do feel that cat is kind of just overlooked in the greater context of the series and so i'm really wanting to see like her last surviving sibling remember her or think about her and and Liza too, because as much as Liza does fuck over Cat and by extension Edmir, they're still siblings and sibling relationships, especially as adults, can certainly be tense and difficult because you're all trying to be your own people, but you know each other too well, and you and you also know each other when you weren't those people. So it's this like game of like I see this person that you're wanting to be right now. But I also remember when you weren't that person. And I feel like with the um, Tully siblings, it's always there because the Lannister siblings kind of always stay in that childish dynamic. They don't ever really kind of interact with people as adults. But I do feel that the Tully siblings do try to see each other as adults. But then it's just like, I'm the better adult because, you know, I'm the eldest or, well, I'm the lady here or I'm the Lord here. So you may be my older sister, but, you know, remember whose house you're in. Because I get a lot of that from Liza and Edmure when Kat interacts with them. And Kat, from her perspective, is just like, I don't care where we are. Like, I'm still your older brother or your older sister. So, yeah, this this sibling dynamic is really in interesting to me. Just to see that be a constant through the series. Because, again, we spend time with Kat and Liza. We spend time with Kat and Edmure. But it doesn't really... I don't see it explored as much as I do the Baratheon brother dynamic or the Lannister dynamic or the Starklings. Hmm. That's a really interesting. And I think what you're saying about how is it going to show up in Edmure? Because like you, you said, right, it's a lot of trauma that has just been suddenly thrust into his story after he has been sort of cherished as not only the youngest, right, but also the son after so many years. And yet, uh, as you're saying, not only is Cat the eldest, in many ways, I wonder if her siblings resented like she was the perfect golden child right she did everything dad said yeah. and but also Edmure it, it would be interesting as well now that there's a possibility that Edmure is a parent right what what would he think about like wow my sister died for this and also like what what might he think about having a child and would we see any parallels between Edmure's perspective on parenthood with cats and that sort of ferocity and protectiveness that right like having that child and like his siblings dead both of his siblings are dead he's left and i think there's a feeling of that going around for the starks that think they're alone right now right they yeah. think their entire family is dead yeah. and cat who thinks her family's dead too her children are dead that loneliness right and that isolation that each of them are feeling mm -hmm. and as we get forward in the books and backward and forward, like a little pinball machine that we are over here at Girls Gone Ganon, uh, as we go forward kind of and we see feast and dance and that loneliness starts to ebb as they learn, like there, there's whisperings, right, of them still living, yeah. of them still existing throughout mm -hmm. the story, of the North remembering even, oh God, if I say it. Um, and 
even for Edmir, the, the, the moments with Jamie, that pain, right? Like, you'll never know how much I hate you, Kingslayer. Him standing in his ancestral home, you know, a prisoner. Those feelings. I hope that Edmir lives. I, I hope beyond hope he does. To, I do hope he lives. Line going. I do I hope he, he lives. There's just the one gripe I have about that. And then here comes the man hater is like in that speech, he talks about <laughs> Hoster and Littlefinger. Like that's, that's the, the fuller text, right? He's like, you know, my father sat here while Littlefinger and I played. And I'm just like, it's so fucking interesting that like between the four kind of kids of River Run, the three Tullys more think about the relationship with Littlefinger than each other. And I'm just like, how fucking important could this kid be to y'all's childhood that you think about him more than your actual siblings? Like, again, like I have two younger sisters. We grew up together. There was no like fourth ward or anything. So that perspective is a little bit different for me. But I'm just thinking just like, it's just so interesting the way that like Edmure thinks more about his relationship with Littlefinger than his relationship with Kat and Liza. And I do agree with you, Eliana, for, from Kat's perspective. I do think it's a little bit of the Marsha Brady syndrome. Like, yeah, Kat's the fucking <laughs> perfect child. So, like, everyone's just like, oh, yeah. Well, Catelyn was better at sums. Well, of course she fucking was. She's fucking Catelyn, but whatever. Uh, but it, it's, again, it's just so interesting that they, in the scenes that we get of them, there's just the kind of fourth sibling, Littlefinger, that maybe it was just safer for them to think about, or maybe they just didn't have, like, that same mm. expectation. Because, uh, yeah, he's, you know, fucking Littlefinger from nowhere, so he's not... I'm not guess well, he's not important, but he's not as dynastically important as Kat is, so maybe that's why they might have spent more of their, you know, conscious thoughts on him than than Kat, who's just probably just like this monolith in their head of like the golden tully. The golden trout. <laughs> the golden trout. Ugh. It's like Doran says to bring back some Doran thoughts, like Eliana said last week, you know, and yet here I remain. Oh, They're yeah. gone, and here I remain. You know, yeah so that, that's what i'm wanting from not Edmure. the one like ned like ned nedmir yeah that's that's what i want from edmir just to be like the they remain or like they're they're gone and, and i remain because again like i mean cat died while you're fucking like you're literally fucking dude like that's that's a lot to process <laughs> i could understand yeah. why a person it, wouldn't it want to do that but as a cat stand yeah. i want him to do that give me the pain <laughs> it would be a yeah. good exploration it would it would make sense for him to, yeah, not want to touch that memory. And because I think you're right, it's interesting that he thinks of Littlefinger. It makes sense for me why Catelyn and Liza do, because in many ways, Littlefinger is a sort of locus of trauma mm-hmm. for both of them. Mm-hmm. Very connected to trauma in their lives. But for Edgar, he's like, I don't know, that was my friend Peter. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, now you said that. Edmir definitely was because we see in the other chapters, right? He all he often tends to hang out with his friends over his family, right? Mm. With like the Pipers and and Malisers and this and that. So uh, it it does make sense for me in that perspective. But I still do want him to have that sibling moment because I mean, mm-hmm. fucking Kevin gets one, Jenna gets one, like all the siblings get one. I want yeah. Edmir to have one for Cat and Liza. Fucking Danny gets one about Viserys, Maybe. right? Like, yeah. Maybe maybe it's supposed to be like a big emotional moment, and it, we just uh, you know, we're still waiting. I'm yeah. just waiting a yeah. lot all the I, time. I'm but- holding out a <laughs> yeah. little little hope that hopefully won't get blown away like a candle at a storm. Ah, could be like in a moment where he's talking with a uh, the blackfish. I think that'd be good. Yeah, yeah, that would be a good like 
family moment to have. And I think that would do good for, for the Blackfish because he's he's going to die, too. They're all going to die. Uh, speaking oh, of fine. people who are going to die. Oof. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oof, yep. We're, it's It's coming. It's coming, yeah. You know, Rob gets seated during the whole main feast between Alex Frey and Fairwalda, and he danced with all the girls, everyone. He did his duty, his family duty, honor, and he did it hard. He danced with all of them, even Lady Frey. Cat wonders if Walder's happy, right? Or if he's going to find a reason to complain. She tries at her table in her area to be pleasant with Ryman complimenting his sister's dancing, and Ryman's like, they're aunts and cousins. The food's mediocre, but the booze flows heavy. The Great John's bombed. Merritt Frey, Walder's son, matched him cup for cup. Wee-oo, wee-oo. Uh, <laughs> sirens. But Waylon Frey already passed out from this drinking. I'm surprised that any of the Freys were fucking drinking during this, to be honest. I know that Merritt is, like, told you have to try and get the Great John super drunk. I'm like, how did... How did Merritt, like, hold up? And, like, obviously the Grey John holds up, as we find out, but... Anyway. I just I just would not drink knowing that ahead of time I'm supposed to betray a bunch of people, but... You're built different. Yeah, we are built different, <laughs> me and the phrase, okay? We are! And I am still struck by that language about the flooding from last chapter and how the, the booze this chapter, it is described as flowing heavily and it, and once more it ends up kind of being likened to the river outside and I think again of this sort of idea of a red flood, but a flood in general, right? And it's rising, it's flowing stronger and the flood doesn't only come from Rob, right? Because I mean, floods don't always get controlled like that and you get this sort of like flood archetype coming in. It covers their entire kingdom and it ends up sort of not just washing him away but also Tywin and Joffrey and it clears the entire board washes it away for what's to come and creates some power vacuums in A Feast for Crows and you know that's how we end up with that meal covered in maggots that Rob really really wanted to try hashtag rat king yes with stewed crow rat cook maggots rat cook ew gross not uh, what I'm into <laughs> not my order but it's not Halloween delicious Oh man, it's spooky. Yeah, we did actually really align this well. I I'm I'm proud of us for that. Maybe I, they're uh, candied maggots. Ugh, still gross. I would do locusts, but maggots are like I mean they're dirty, you know? Not if you mm. love it. They are. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean you could you could you could breed the maggots and the flies to be clean enough to eat, but that seems like a lot here. Well that's <laughs> a lot for me right now with the calves the jellied calves and the the locusts and the maggots so don't listen to the podcast while you eat even though it's a podcast about food that's a warning i'd give you all i would (laughs) cat would have rather that lord umber stay sober but there's this great line that i think is very indicative of uh one of your hosts and another one of your hosts that telling the great john not to drink was like telling him not to breathe for a few hours. And originally when I heard that quote, I wanted to volunteer and say me. But, you know, I'd like to redact that and say Eliana, 12 a.m., Sunday, Monday morning, uh, it is more applicable. You know what? I just came too late for the party. All right? I just came too late. Unlike I just, Grey John Umber. I, you that were roaring. You yeah. were roaring. Like the river outside. You were roaring. Susurus. A susurus of booze. Ooh, a series. A susurus of booze, yes, when the boozes flows. 
Um, I myself had a great John weekend of just getting a little, a little too drunk, but wouldn't stop. <laughs> wouldn't stop. <laughs> Let's like a really, because I got drunk. And apparently one of my first thoughts was to message the discord that I was drunk and to post pictures of my drug activities. And then apparently just started sending people like very long Instagram video messages of me being like, I want to still go out, but my phone's not charged, but I think I'm still going to go out anyway. So when I nice. soberly, not soberly, when I, when I hung overly woke up Monday and had like all these responses, I was like, oh, fuck, what did I say? <laughs> you were doomed. You you pulled up the sleeve and the chain mail was beneath. Yeah. Very well, that. You were trying that. to have a You were having trying to have a Grey John weekend when you are Lord Karstark. How yeah, can sorry. you I uh, forgot that I was damned and sad. Oh my god. Oh my god. Wanted a vengeance. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> On call. That was some like you think the Jon Snow on call is impressive. That was that was real impressive. That was there. that was very impressive. Good voice work. Good voice work. Thank you. Uh, so Rob is sitting in the table with Robin Flint and Small John near him. Neither of them are drinking, and Patrick, Malister, and Daisy are guarding him. They're his guard for the evening. And Catelyn thinks that a wedding feast was not a battle, but there were always dangers when men are in their cups, and a king should never be unguarded. The sword belts are hung on... Sorry, hanged, my god. The sword belts are hanged on pegs along the walls. She thinks no man needs a longsword to deal with jellied calves' brains, which reminds me a lot of the Odyssey, actually. Uh, in the Odyssey, mm. you know, there's a great plot of Odysseus coming home and slaying suitors at a wedding feast type event for Penelope, all the suitors that have come for his wife Penelope. But before the feast, he has his son move blades that are all hanging on the wall into a closet, and he says that sometimes mm. the blade itself incites to deeds of violence. Many fantasy authors have played with that idea from mythology. I know that Joe Abercrombie has used it in his books. Uh, honestly, the slaughter in the Odyssey reminds me in this in many different ways, just uh, not the same intent. I could even see it when I, when the Red Wedding 2.0 comes out, I can see the Odyssey and this kind of slaughter that happens in it mirroring Red Wedding 2.0 even more than this. But however that happens, this quote really struck out for me. For From the Odyssey, The attackers struck like eagles, crook-clawed, hook-beaked, swooping down from a mountain ridge to harry smaller birds that skim across the flatland. Cringing under the clouds, but the eagles plunge in fury, rip their lives out, hopeless, never a chance of flight or rescue, and people loved the sport. So the attackers rooted suitors headlong down the hall, wheeling into the slaughter, slashing left and right, and grisly screams broke from skulls cracked open, the whole floor awash with blood. It reminds me of Roos's strategy, right? We're hearing so much of Roos's strategy and Rob's main strategies of enemies from behind and covering all sides of them and then forcing them into a trap and that's what's happened to our starks here mm. yeah <laughs> not not good <laughs> not good at all things are so we would put it a bummer for all yeah a bummer um, for all a bummer of <laughs> it, bummers it, i like this connection that you brought up because 
in a different way the the suitors in the Odyssey around Penelope. I think we've brought this up before. Uh, remind me of the suitors around Liza, mm-hmm. and yeah. but also, and I think you're going to talk about this a little more later. Connections between Cat and Danny that have come up throughout this read through, but it, it's a little reminiscent as well of being at Vase Dothrak, right, and not being permitted to bring weapons in, but. I guess sword belts being on pegs isn't quite the same as, you know, not having them at all. I I don't know. I think there's also a connection you can make between the suitors for Penelope for houses Frey and Bolton suiting for the positions of the Tullys and the Starks. Oh, Mm. interesting. To replace them, yes. Because I was also thinking of the phrase as the suitors for Rob, he's surrounded by his suitors. Yeah. He's Penelope. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, that's what I look at it, too. Yeah, they're both. That's both it, though. Like, it's... Because I mean, both... the suitors in this position are vultures, right? Like, the suitors are literally vultures. Yeah. Over, they're feasts for crows over mm-hmm. Penelope. Uh, Penelope's undefended, and this is a feast for crows. This is... God. Shit. Yeah, I know. This awful. is uh, good eating for them for the moment. But, yeah, it is... For houses Frey and Bolton, like, this is their... They're taking their shot. Like, you know, yeah, like, yeah. fuck both those houses, but they're taking their shot. They are. Mm. It is a shot. It is. They are taking a shot. <sighs> the Grey Johns over there taking shots. Shots, oh shots, 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 shots. <laughs> oh my god, I bet they did play that. They played that at the <laughs> wedding. Or they tried. Worst wedding. They tried to, but then the Grey John, he's like, you know, Sig, Alpha, Wolf, Alon. So he's just too used to it. So he just out drinks them. He's like, this yeah. is nothing compared to Rush Week. Just, uh. <laughs> Shots is playing. He's singing Freebird. <laughs> oh my god. Well, speaking of the Boltons, we've got a, a kind of new Bolton, sorta, who's also a Frey, of course. We got Lady Walta Frey Bolton telling Sir Wendell that she thought, you know what? I thought Roos was going to choose Fair Walda, but then Walder offered Roos his bride's weight in silver. And then Lord Bolton chose me. And so now she's like, and super proud to be six stone heavier than Fairwalda. She's, she's all like, I'm Lady Bolton now, and my cousin's still a maid, and she'll be 19 soon. A poor thing. Oh my god. The the poor thing makes me think of Sansa when she says that. So some similar sentiments. But I'm also imagining that Lady Bolton now, Lady Frey Bolton, probably wasn't in <laughs> on it because I don't see that being necessary. So she's just having a good time, right? She's just like... Girl, I've got my man. Sorry to all you single ladies, but um, it's it's nice being married. Good luck out there. You know, maybe there's going to be a attorney or something. You can find yourself a nice little knight, but I've got a lord. So who's laughing now? It's interesting because that. just like Arya in The Winds of Winter, spoilers, spoilers, but, you know, everyone has their role to play, right? Arya says she knows her lines, you know yours. Mm. And Walda... This is part of her role. Like, she is deliberately put into the bedding. The bedding is where she's useful. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you see each of these phrases kind of start to go to their useful spot. And if they're not there, they're not useful to the situation. Yeah, that's. I, I think that's definitely intentional. I just yeah. wonder how much of it is like... Because Black Walder and the other one that planned this, like, I, I feel like there was a time where they were just like, we want them to do this because that's what they're going to do anyway. Versus we need to tell this person to do this. Like, they had to tell the mm-hmm. dude to keep drinking. But I'm sure it just seems 
from what we what little we do get of, of Lady Frey Bolton that she just seems to be one of the more gregarious ones anyway. So I kind of feel like she's just like kind of angle her in that right direction and she'll get there without necessarily needing to get her in on the plan. If she is on the plan, good for her. <laughs> she she matches her evil husband. But I could also just see that being just like just making use of her gregarious nature versus planning to use her gregarious nature. She has her own ambitions, right? Like you see these phrase have their own ambitions and their mm-hmm. own wants. And like she's secured a bag. She's good right now. She's got her bag. She doesn't want much else. She doesn't want to play with this phrase succession bullshit. She's out. She's gone. And Lord She's Bolton, Lord Bolton's there to get his bag too, as we know. Like he doesn't, he does not take part in the chit chat at the tables. And he makes a toast at the start, and he mentions that you know Walder's grandsons are in his care. With his son, his bastard son, Ramsey, in the north, little and big Walder. Ding, 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 red flags, but he makes a big show of it. Yeah, there's... I'll have more to say about Rob's strategy and his, like, counselors or whatever, but it it just boggles the mind that there just doesn't seem to be, like, any thought process from Rob to, like, give Roos commands or orders especially as Roos continues to like introduce information to him in the camp right about like oh we lost these forces here we lost those forces there my bastard's taking care of this they're over there now it just seems like there's just not a scene of Rob just being like maybe I should like take ownership of this part of like you know my flank or I should try to like do something to curtail these losses that I'm experiencing again Rob is kind of like in free fall by that point when they get the news but it still just seems like such a big fucking gap that there's just no like, hmm, it seems like everything over there is kind of going bad. Maybe I should call them back. Maybe we should, you know, you know, call them into the office real quick. Come come chat with the principal after class. <laughs> but yeah, just yeah. And then like all the like, I, I definitely agree with with the notes that this is like between Frey and Bolton just being like, hey, you know, we're betraying together, but you're not betraying me. But it's again, it just seems really interesting that there's no direct desire of Rob to directly manage Ruse. Yeah, it, yeah, it's not at that point, like you said, it's a free fall. It's an absolute free fall. Yeah, absolutely. And and I mean, and that he comes so hard on Edmir, right? And he doesn't do anything to Ruse. And I and he, I guess he's been forced into a position where he feels like he has to be very. Uh, you know, prostrating before his uh, lords and vassals after what happened with the Karstarks and needs mm-hmm. like every single one that he can get. But at the same time, I'm like, this was suspicious. All of the things that Roos did were suspicious. All right, Rob. <laughs> it's a lot of posturing, right? Uh, Roos uses this speech as a very friendly reminder. He's like, don't fuck me over. Right, Walder? Like, we we have plans here. Do not betray me. And that that little mention of the grandchildren is insurance. And I can imagine Walder had some ideas of killing all the Northmen. I mean, the North is a vacuous place to store all of his different heirs. He has so many, right? Like, you know, I could just kill all of them. No monkey business, though. That's what this speech means. Bolton's like, now we're in this together, buddy. He's also got Walda. Right. Yeah. On top of all of that. And I don't think I don't think he cares if he kills her. But I will say it's a good thing for Roos that he has leverage over the phrase, but mostly just like for him, because 
when I look at everything back, like, I'm just like, a lot of this was such a bad deal for Walder Frey, right? Because what he wants in a large way is respect from the other houses and that prestige. And he gets none of it for doing the Lannister's dirty work. He ends up getting all of the blame for everything. And Roose gets what he wants. Like, he kind of gets to hide his entire role in everything. And then he goes and he gets the North and the Freys are still left with, like, I don't know, everyone still thinks you suck. The but. sin. Yeah, they have the biggest sin on their shoulders. Well, yeah, because it happened at their house, right? Like, Roose... Yeah. I think Roos was potentially angling for some plausible deniability, but, like, the phrase can't. Oh, yeah. And they're fucking oh, yeah. bullshit. They all turned into werewolves' warg story like no one's buying it. So, yeah, Roos definitely did play up and get, like, I mean, he got an upgrade in his title. Mm-hmm. Walder mm-hmm. Stoll has the same title, right? Um, something... He made a lateral move. Maybe even, like, not a lateral move. I don't know. Yeah, he just, <laughs> yeah, he just stayed in place. Something that was brought up in the Lady Gwen episode, I think, yeah, because that's where where we saw Blackfish get that title. Something else that I think Rob really did not do well, as as y'all have been talking about in these last couple episodes, is like he did not politic well. And I think one of the major failings of his campaign was not creating new offices. So he made the one, the war in the Southern Marches. I'm like... You need to make more, like give people something to kind of sign up for. Like, where's your order of the river wolves or something to kind of get people on board? (laughs) 401k. Yeah. Like, where are the benefits? What's the PTO? (laughs) Inspire some company loyalty. Because I mean, like if he had so many or if there are just so many like, you know, knights in the Riverlands and stuff that, you know, are looking for this glory, the second sons or whatever, a new kingdom is a new opportunity to just like make shit up. (laughs) Like, hey. Here's this new order because he kind of had like two with his guard, but like his guard just seemed more informal versus like an it was his personal honor guard. But it didn't seem like like Sansa's uh, winged knights or Renly's rainbow yeah. guards. It was just like, hey, you're exactly. just on guard duty. And Rob needed like you need the titles. You need the incentives. You need the story. You need to feed them the narrative of this is the story that you're part of. And I think that would have been so smart to offer to Lord Karstark right in in payment for the sacrifice of his family and and, and acknowledging like you know you have lost a lot right and as you said like i think that's why yeah it's so important that we did get to see renly's camp through catelyn's story because people were flocking to renly's cause and and part of it is what you said right they offered them benefits and they offered them a story to be part of and the northern story just wasn't strong enough for them they're like i don't know i don't care about your dead dad like I think it is absolutely criminal to almost being a a plot hole that Rob didn't connect his campaign with the narrative of the Lannister's treachery because he had Kat. Kat had Liza's letter. Liza's letter implicated the Lannisters for murdering John Aaron. Hmm. And then Liza just fucks off to the veil and just sits there. So like, had it been me, obviously not but like Lysa would have ignored me like once twice thrice the lady and I would have been like okay fuck her I'm sitting down with uh Blackfish and Catelyn tell me the disposition of these Veil Lords who was loyal to John Aaron who was loyal to my father who's looking for glory who's looking for war because there's a thread like John Aaron dies uh, Robert Baratheon dies Ned Stark dies now we're here and you're over there and we're fighting not directly, but you could spin the narrative like we are fighting for John Aaron's memory if we're going against the Lannisters. 
yes, we know the Lannisters didn't kill them, but they had reason to suspect that they do because Kat had Liza's letter. Mm -hmm. So again, like not connecting that story. I think that was one of the biggest like missed opportunities of Rob's war is because he just mm. got stonewalled by Liza a couple of times and just like gave up. I'm like, go around her. Cause imagine you, yeah. cause him sending that message to the Royces, the Rainwoods, the Templetons, the Aaron's of Goldtown, like that could have forced the Lord's declarant to exist earlier. Right. Because like, even if they don't siege the Erie, which is not a great idea, they would just leave. They could just leave and just go join Rob's campaign. So again, like that story, like the pieces were there because they had Liza's letter. They then they get Sansa's letter too. like they have the pieces. They just don't do anything with them. And so it's just, it's just a really frustrating thing to see as like as a rereader to kind of get this information and just see like how it gets kind of bottlenecked and then lost. And then, of course, you know, there is a war happening. There's like other stuff going on. But like it just staggers me sometimes that rob and cat and brendan just man we've we've emailed liza and she just our dms are going unanswered there's just nothing we can do i'm like yeah talk to someone else like there are other people you could have talked to to see if you could like uh solicit the veil to join your to join your side to join your cause because your cause matches up with their best interests avenging john aaron protecting robert aaron like i mean i'm not saying that you have to like try to make liza a pariah but I think you have to present the the option of, hey, the only reason we're here fighting is because the Lannisters are killing Hands of the Kings, one of which was your lord. So you in, you out, like, do y'all care? Do y'all not care? Like, at least give me an answer. She shouldn't have burned Liza's letter. Yeah, that was the first. Should have kept it, but it mm -hmm. would have just been a paper shield at that point, too, to be fair, as we see with Ned, right? Like, logistically in the story. But it, it is hard, and it, it's almost as if A Feast for Crows answers that. Like, Alex, as you began saying that, I was like, oh, so they want to be Littlefinger. That's the disposition they want to have. <laughs> <laughs> because that's really where it is, right? Like, that's what Littlefinger sees. Littlefinger sees the power vacuum, and he goes for it. He's yeah. like, oh, mm -hmm. everything's going awful here, where Kat doesn't have quite enough time to figure it out, where she does, but then she doesn't, right? Because of, like, trauma and life and grief and war and travel. I mean, I'm just saying traveling is exhausting, right? Eliana, Truly. I know you can tell me, and Alex, I know you can tell me, travel's exhausting. Yeah. I feel Alex thrives off travel, though. I do, it's yeah, fine. That's true. It's fine. You, you, yeah. Yeah, Some I travel, travel to my bed. Sim. <laughs> I was in Seattle this time last week, and now I'm here in Boston. So, yeah, I'd be traveling. <laughs> I'd be traveling. Well, Catelyn then thinks of Sansa's wedding, which unfortunately she didn't get to attend, and prays for the mother to take mercy on her, thinking she has a gentle soul. Ugh. Yeah, and I just want to so like sad. briefly mention again, it's like what we were just talking about, where Cat just has all the, like almost all the pieces right there. But because of things like Sansa's marriage, you know, losing Brandon Rickon, allegedly, like she just doesn't seem to be able to sit and ruminate on them, which is weird because she was under house arrest for like X amount of time. But it's just interesting that like she's just so close so much of the time, especially in this chapter, like this chapter, she is picking up on the signs like they are neon, but she's just not coming, coming to that conclusion. 
part of it because like you can't see the red wedding coming because it is such a gross breach of how, how things are done but again just like all of these little events just constantly delaying cat from just like connecting the dots is just such a just strong dramatic irony because it just makes us you know brenda yeah. from from scary movie we're like no bitch no like just rod leave <laughs> yeah oh yeah the mention of the wedding is sad. That That's the saddest thing. She's just thinking of all she's lost and of all her family's lost. And of course, reminds me of Sansa in A Storm of Swords when Lady Tanda says to her, like, oh, you have a gentle heart, my lady, for she was crying in the street as Joffrey died, as she has a panic attack in the street. And Catelyn thinks she has a gentle soul. Ah, it's so sad. And... Catelyn's feeling sick from the heat and the noise and the smoke and the musicians who are loud and not gifted. She swallows wine and she thinks this will be over in a few hours. Rob will be off to deal with the Ironborn and Moat Kaelin. This is pretty sad that this is Catelyn Stark as we know her, her last party. Because there was the River Run wow. kind of party where she and Brienne were just like, no, we're just going to be over here. And then there was the Rinley party over at Caswell's Keep. That she ended up being able to avoid because, you know, Renly wanted to, like, you know, show how big his dick, I mean, his army was. But this is the one that she just, like, can't avoid. She can't isolate. She has to just be a part of this when she's just not in the mood. And, yeah, it's just such a such a strong contrast, especially since one of her earliest chapters was the Winterfell Feast. So she goes from, like, great party to the Red Wedding. It's because she threw that party. She threw a bane party. True, true. Cat's the best party planner. Add that to the list of things I shout that Cat's the best at. Party planner. <laughs> oh my god. <sighs> well, fortunately she wasn't in charge of this one because the drums are pounding, Jingle Bell hops by, and the music is so loud that she can't even hear his bells. She can't be like, DJ, please turn it down. Because again, not her party. And above the music, a snarling arises. Two dogs fall upon each other over a scrap of meat. Someone pours ale on them and they break apart. One limps to the dace, shaking ale all over three of Walder's grandsons, and he sits laughing. And I mean, the dogs fighting each other, like that over a scrap of meat. If that's not a metaphor... I don't know what it is. <laughs> the phrase. Yep. <laughs> it's like boop. the dogs afraid. So <laughs> I got it. I got there. I love the reminder uh, that comes back later in Theon's chapters, right? Of the dogs fighting in Winterfell over uh, mm -hmm. Theon one. That that's what this makes me think of. But the dogs make Catelyn think of Grey Wind because Walder refused to let him in. He makes a very, very big deal about it, saying that his wild beast has a taste for human flesh, rips out throats, and he'll have no creature at his Roslyn's feast, amongst women and little ones, all his sweet innocence. Him and his kin are literally wolves themselves. Rob tried to defend Greywind, but Walder uses the whole kerfluffle that went down at the gates with Peter Pimple and company. And he's like, what if Peter had broke his neck on that horse? What would you do? Give me another apology in place of a grandson. It's hysterical. Walder pushes this so hard because it's obviously not really a worry. Catelyn also absorbed this petty motherfucking fight about Peter Pimple, right? Because she ends up breaking his neck personally in the afterlife. Like, she took that personally. She's like, interesting. You're that upset about Peter Pimple's neck? Well, I'm outside Fair Market and I have a noose. Catelyn Stark is about yeah. that action. 
Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, good for her. And also, I mean, yeah, falling from a horse can be, like, real dangerous, as we know with, what, um, Willis, Tyrell, and him and Oberyn, because Oberyn gets introduced in this book. I mean... He's mildly important in this book. But also, I, I do love, you know, what you were saying of, like, it's so funny that Walder pushes so hard. Because, like, he doesn't give a shit, obviously, about Peter. Because he doesn't care when Catelyn is murdering his other grandson, like, in two seconds. Like, he does not give a shit. He's just taking the piss. Well, and, well, I would argue, because Peter Frey is, I want to say, above Jingle Bell. He's he's above Aegon, well, yes. so and he's more capable in his eyes than Aegon. So I would say he probably does care about Peter a little bit for that, but also Only he doesn't a give bit. a fuck. I mean, he's totally mad maxing his fucking family tree at this point, right? He has spares. He has the air has and the spares. spare and the spare and the spare yeah. and the spare and the spare. He's got a lot of donuts in that truck, okay, Alex? Donuts. <laughs> Is that the new uh, drunk in your trunk? Donut. Donuts in your trunk? Yeah, I want absolutely. A donut. <laughs> Not that kind of donut, Eliana. That's what fuels me. That's what I ride on. Apple Rob is donut. pretty it's fueled. apple cider donut. Oh, that sounds yeah. good. Rob is pretty fueled up himself. He's furious, right, about this whole Grey Wind thing at the time. But he yielded courteously, and she remembers him saying, hashtag rat cook, if it pleases Lord Walder to serve me stewed crow smothered in maggots, he told her, I'll eat it and ask for a second bowl, and so he had. So the great John drinks Peter Pimple under the table next, right? We're on our second man. And he begins to sing The Bear and the Maiden Fair very loudly. Unfortunately, the musicians are not currently singing that song. They're playing Flowers of Spring, and even Jingle Bell is covering his ears at the sound. Roose Bolton murmurs something and says he's going to head off to find the bathroom. The hall is in constant motion, servants, guests coming, going. A second feast was happening for knights and lords in the other castle. Walder's baseborn family members were exiled on that side of the river, and the Northmen had begun calling it the Bastard Feast. Some guests were stealing off to see if it was a better time than their feast, as the Freys were providing ample booze for them as well. So I find the concept of the Bastard Feast interesting in the context of Liza's marriage, of course, which, and, and of course her child with Peter hanging over this, and then, of course, John as the heir, Jon Snow's role in Catelyn's story in general, and the whole, like, line that he used. This He was the one person who had, like, a very bad time at that party that Catelyn planned, right? Because he was he uses the line, even though that wasn't why he was joining Mance, and is like, did you see where they sat the bastard, right? And he, he clearly ran out of their upset, but he made a new friend. That's sometimes how parties go. You're upset, and you make a new friend out of it. But I do wonder if the concept of this bastard feast will somehow come back in a way, like with that same language, because I, I don't know, it just it's it's an interesting idea. And I also will point out that the party doesn't flow the other way, right? When we talk about the the ability for people to move between classes and spaces especially right the lower knights and the lower lords and and the baseborn members of house Frey, they can only go to that one party whereas those who are not having as good of a time at the i guess more highborn party they can choose whichever one they go to they get options but Ooh. also maybe they also escape the slaughter a little bit or have a better chance but whatever well, I, I mean, mean like that class mobility and that, that access to spaces is 
it's such a like a thing right it's like in in our real world right like your boss or manager wouldn't ever feel weird about entry into your space but like if you go to your boss's office and announce it's gonna be like wait what are you doing right like that enforced hierarchy so yeah it's really interesting Mm -hmm. that the lower knights and the lower lords that's where they want to go because it's also just like when i mean this is kind of tangential but like when you are a marginalized group and you make a safe space and then the like the other the outside group wants to come into it because it's like more fun it's like no like we made this space to get away from you and then you just want access to it so you just uh just again just like take that access and use that privilege to like access our you know our kind of predefined little area here absolutely i think that's a that's a perfect way of putting it yeah and unfortunately it is such a bummer because it's such a bummer for, uh all. for all for all yes <laughs> actually sorry, mostly sorry. for just for some for some but no it Not is all. a bummer for most because like for most even those people in that place in the bastard feast they're not better off most of those people die as well in with That's more true. confusion right uh while their oh yeah wow might be on them but they die drunk as fuck and they don't have as much good food to absorb it with i'm just putting that out there like literally in my i guess eight-ish years of knowing about this i have never once thought about what did the rest of the northmen think <laughs> right like those who are sober enough to have conscious thoughts because like they made the tents and shit collapse on them right so you know they're just drinking yep. doing shots and keg stands and then it's like oh wait i'm dying what what this is my first night off in months my first night yeah. off in oh how many God. months and i'm dead i'm dead now they're not yeah. thinking they're dead yeah. That is fun. Right? That's well, what they thought about. That's it. weird because the, the is... cover has dark materials, Eliana, and <laughs> consciousness. Bob um, has the worst happy hours ever. No one signed up for his for his startup company. This is your wow. happy this hour. This is his first happy hour. This is like the first happy hour that he's had. You know who gives happy hours? Edmure. All right. The Tully's party. That's yeah. it. Yeah, they get wine drunk. Lake life. Rob sits in Bolton's place after Bolton's gone to the bathroom and he tells his mother, the farce is almost done. Ah, ah. He says... (laughs) Hurtful. He says Blackwalder has been mild and Edmure has been content in his bride. Rob leans across to Sir Ryman and asks, is Olivar at the other feast? He means to ask him to squire for them in the north, but Ryman says, Olivar is gone from the castles duty that just reminded me of like it, uh, mario 64 it's like sorry you're olivar's in another castle <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta redo this level oh exactly god. oh my god uh, there's no that... redo unless you're Catelyn. <laughs> uh she's got that one up oh my god <laughs> <laughs> zombie mushroom a zombie one up mushroom Ryman offers them nothing more, and Rob's like, all right, well, that's cool. He's like, I'm not going to talk to that guy anymore. Going to move on. He asks Catalin to dance with him, but Catalin declines, saying, I'm sure there's a Frey daughter you haven't danced with yet. Okay, that just made me sad. They didn't even get a last dance together. I know. There was, and at his wedding, there was no mother son dance. Yeah, there's no mother. Yeah. Didn't get a first dance because he didn't invite his yeah. mom to the wedding. So. Oh, that just made me really sad. Uh, oh, fuck. They're not dead yet, okay? Hang in there. There's still a chance, hey. Alex. Oh, Stop. Hey. Oh, God. You want me to hang in there? Sword, sword, cut me down. Cut me down. <laughs> 
The musicians play iron lances, then, while the great John moves on to sing The Lusty Lad at the same time. Catalan thinks, which Catalan is so fucking funny, she thinks, someone should acquaint them with each other. It might improve the harmony. Like, George, like, we, um, we know this was like the last chapter he wrote for this book, and I'm just like, damn, like, Cat Stark's POV is ending on an absolute banger. Like, this is a, a roast. She's got heat for everybody, and it's just great. Like, this is just contextually isolated from the events. Really funny stuff happening. Oh, absolutely. And there's a lot of bangers. A lot of bangers that happen in this chapter. Not the least the drums. Drums are banging. <laughs> yes. The crossbows are going to be banging. Admir and Roslyn. Oh, yeah, they're banging. She does not want to be here. Uh, she does not want to be here. Oh, my God. She she does make an effort though, right? She turns to Ryman and tries to make conversation. She asks after one of his cousins, who's a singer, and he responds, Alessander is Simon's son, Alex's brother, and Kat asks if Alessander will play for them tonight. She's making such effort at this small talk. But Ryman responds that he's away, and he pardons himself, staggering toward the door. Ah, I hate this. I love it, though, because the realization dawns that each of the non-fighter, non-political aggressor phrase are missing. Right, as we see with the betting soon, the phrase that aren't fighters go with the betting. The phrase that are fighters go get suited up and come back and murder. All of the phrase that aren't there couldn't be spiritually enough, strong enough to be afraid in this moment to uh, show up and they're locked away in another castle, as you said, Alex. It's rough. Yeah. And I wonder if that'll make a difference. Probably. It's not going to make a difference for them <laughs> when they come up against Catelyn. <laughs> but besides besides that part, you know, like that being, I think, a red flag, right? Some of them being away, like, and especially coming back to Oliver being away and Ryman being like a fucking weirdo about it. It sucks because like Oliver actually like really likes Rob. Like he loves Rob. He wanted to stay with him. Like a brother. Yeah, exactly. And like I do think it, it it's a sign, right? All of these people like being like, oh yeah, they're not here right now. That's a sign of what's to come. And, you know, besides the the revenge murder zombie times coming for House Frey later on, I do think that House Frey's fate is in its name. Um the house is beginning to fray and, and I think it will. Like a, a rope that is coming apart as all the different families ambitiously try to get each other out for greed and i think some it's interesting that some of them just straight up disagree with how things are going because they're like this whole idea was a bad idea and i liked those people so we're not gonna get a fray pov but like yeah i i really do wonder was there just like a inner fray council when they were just like okay so you know fuck the starks we're team lannister for life um there there are new biffles so how are we gonna do this and then someone's just like wait what like I like the Starks, and it's like, okay, so. you're you're going to yeah. uh, uh, Pink Maiden. Go go over there. Go go find yeah. your cousin. And then separate the ones that dissented immediately. I mean, that's probably what happened. Family yeah. meeting. Like, yeah. you guys say no? Okay, well, you're going to go for a trip. We're yeah. taking you on a trip for vacation. Goodbye. Enjoy your visit. Here's your PTO. Um, <laughs> Don't clock in. And that's part of, yeah, and that's part of why they picked Rosalind. They're also like, along with all of that, collateral. <laughs> Yeah, I don't even remember what chapter, but like the they're talking about like how a lot of the phrase like they'll quarter or they'll break up their, uh, you know, circord so they can be like, you know, we're all phrase, but some of us are like this branch of phrase, this branch of phrase. So so, yeah, I wonder if there is going to be like 
a I don't think they're necessarily going to cleave to like Team Stark as their breaking point, but more just like, hey, we're just not against like this type of betrayal. Like there's lines, but we don't want to do this. So not necessarily like in, you know, I don't think they're other than like all of our maybe like one or two specific people. I don't think there's going to be like this internal Stark Tully leaning coalition of the phrase. Yeah, I think there might just be a coalition of the like, hey, we just don't want to like murder kill our way out of engagements mm-hmm. yeah and then the other the other part of them also like every fray for themselves too and, a yeah. and I, I think that's what's going to be sad yeah oh a fray for all love that oh my god um but <laughs> chloe's like i'm being attacked on my own podcast but i and i think that's what'll be sad the lady stoneheart because clearly there are some who were stark sympathizers and she's gonna be like well fuck you too i don't care <laughs> true <laughs> I was a Stark sympathizer, not by me. <laughs> not enough. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, things seem okay otherwise, right? Like Kat keeps calming herself down. She's like, "Oh, Edmure's kissing Roslyn. Sir Mark Piper and Danwell Frey are playing a drinking game. Lothar's making some side jokes to Hostine." Afray is juggling daggers for giggling girls, and Jingle Bell is sucking wine off his fingers on the floor. Also me. Same. That is me. Tag yourself. Um, the servers bring out the only good dish of the night, which is juicy pink lamb. Oh, that's a red flag. Lamb for slaughter. Rob leads Daisy Mormont in a dance, and Daisy is wearing a dress in place of her usual armor, and she looks very pretty, willowy, with an illuminating shy smile. She's as graceful on the floor as in the yard, and Kat wonders if Mage had reached the neck yet, having taken her other daughters with her. So that's a great call out, you know, in our episode with Lady Gwyn, we talked about how did the daughters get to Mage? So we don't know. I guess it's unimportant. It's totally not possible in my book without sailing around the white knife or going through the neck. But I will suspend my disbelief for now. I will let him have it. They use Littlefinger's jetpack. Littlefinger's jetpack. And Daisy, though. Daisy is here. Daisy is not gone. And Daisy has remained by Rob's side, devoted to him. Kind of the Mary Magdalene-esque character here. Kat thinks that Rob has Ned's gift for inspiring loyalty. Olivar had been devoted to him, wanting to remain, even after Rob married Jane Westerling. I've been really trying to examine my bias on on that statement from Kat, because obviously Kat's bias because this is her son. But I, and it there's this recurring motif in the story that the Starks do inspire that loyalty because they do give a shit about people, unlike other nobles in their position. So I do think that is true. I suppose like where my criticism challenge of Rob comes in is that he does seem to be good in the personal one-on-one loyalty for the people that he interacts with, but I don't think he did a lot to build loyalty for his cause. And kind of going back to what I said earlier, like not connecting his, like his specific cause with like the Aaron cause. I think that was like a missed opportunity for him to like inspire more of that loyalty because we we get the idea from like other POVs and, and other parts of Westeros, like they just think Rob's a rebel lord, right? Like they don't really have reason to be loyal to him because it just seemed like maybe this was just like a personal vendetta for Ned's death. Because again, like he just didn't do anything to manage the optics of his narrative. And I think that is something where like I'm not a war person, I'm not like a war strategist in that way. 
but having played a lot of board games, um, it's, it's <laughs> particularly like there's there's a game that I play that is actually based off of uh, Song of Ice and Fire IP. It's one of those games where it's like Munchkin or Risk or even Monopoly. Like you can't play that game by yourself. Like if you're just sitting and not interacting with other people, you're going to lose. You're going to be the the first one out in, in most of these cases. And so I think that's something else where like Rob just really did not manage the politics or the intrigue side of his war. Because again, like I do think he could have had a good shot somewhat in the veil if he went around Liza's head. But I also think that my the other what if that I was talking about, it feels like George kind of has put these little seeds of a potential Tyrell Stark alliance because it comes up in no fewer than three different spots from three different people. And so it just seems like George is kind of just like putting this like, well, what if the Starks and the Tyrells did get together? What if they did? Because Kat thinks about it, Rob thinks about it, and Olena thinks about it. So like both sides are kind of towing in that direction, but again, the plot happens. So I, it feels like Rob really could have had a good story for Westeros, right? He's fighting for his father's honor. He's fighting for the hand of the king office and all these things. Also, if he would have reached out to Doran Martell, like Doran was working his own game, Rob didn't know that, but I was trying to think like if I'm Rob and I'm trying to like reach out to each of these other players, like what am I gonna say? And for Doran, like the message just almost writes itself. Like, you know, I'm King of the North, you're Prince of Dorne, titles that could be as far apart as um, Winterfell and Sunspear. But one thing we both are, are brothers to princesses surrounded by lions in the capital. Like that's the message, bro. Like that would, you know, like even if they're not gonna just, you know, send their armies to you, they, that might give them hesitancy with joining with the Lannisters. And so I think, again, like, Rob did really well with the one-on-one -on -one personal touches to inspire loyalty in his guard and the few phrases that wanted to stay with him. But I don't think he did that wide scale with, like, Westeros. And I think that's definitely something where it's like, Rob didn't lose the war, he got cheated. But, like, Rob really didn't, like, help himself win. Absolutely agree. Yeah, they they were the latecomers in the politicking, right? Like they and, and they were sidestepped. I mean, they had they had other things first. I mean, that is oh, yeah, that's very true. It was out of their hands. The everything collapsed by then. Yeah, because like the Lannisters, yeah. the Baratheons, you know, the Dorner secret plan. Like everyone did have their own like plans and conspiracies and motions. I it, again, just like one of those kind of just like soft what ifs. Like, could it have forestalled things? Could it have like kind of got things in your favor? Because yeah, the Starks. They were kind of in a losing position from the jump, but I don't think they helped themselves when they could have helped themselves possibly avert this. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no. Okay. Yeah, it's coming. It's coming. No. It is coming. Well, Walder Frey claps his hands together. Please clap. Like Jeb. Jeb um, Bush. <laughs> yeah, the Jeb Bush clap. All right. Uh, it's a faint clap, though, but Sir Aenys and Hostein then begin to pound their cups on the table, and others join in. Half the guests are pounding. Even the musicians join in, and, and I'm like, you know, there it is, right? That's the echo to the beginning of the chapter where the pounding comes up again, and it's the Freys who are leading that pounding because it's their battle cry. They are drumming their cups mm. against the table. Getting ready to fight. Oh, fuck. <laughs> sneaky, sneaky. Walder calls out to Rob, asking him to officially, you know, start the bedding. And Walder's sons and grandsons then are banging their cups on the table even louder. 
And he has this uh, line of like, a sword needs a sheath, <laughs> and a wedding needs a bedding. What does my sire say? Is it meet that we should bed them? <laughs> and and I just have in the side of like I just I just hate the setting of like a wedding needs a bedding because I keep reading it first time as wetting and like oh so we're just peeing the bed everyone's just oh peeing god. the bed right now oh my god some people that's like what that it sounds that's like, custom. like when I read it it's fast. custom oh my god it is uh, also your hat was perfect this week you know last week we really we struggled to to find <laughs> the tone but this week you have oh. it you have the murder hat I'm Thank so you. proud of you Thank you It's rough though like the bedding. It is a very, it's kind of a violent, weird experience from what we're reading here, especially at this wedding. And Rosalind goes pale white from all of this. Kat wonders if Rosalind is scared of her maidenhead or the bedding itself. And she kind of dissociates herself and thinks about her own wedding night. She thinks about Jory Cassell tearing her gown in his haste to get her out of it. In my head, I'm like taking notes. Interesting. This could be a ship. Is this a ship? Uh, Another cat ship? Uh oh. That's like Mama Milf ship right there with Jory and Cat. That's a. It's kind of a. That's a. That's kind of a sexy. Ooh, that's kind of like a little bodyguard situation, right? Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. Oh, we love a bodyguard. Queen of the night action. Ooh. Come on. Oh. Oh. Show me how you hold your sword, Jory. Ned dies, but Jory survives. Anyways, okay, listen. Guys, we, we are all... Okay, this is cute, though. Let's dial it back. Let's dial it back. Can't get horny now, guys. We got a lot to get through tonight. Desmond Grell kept making jokes, but then immediately apologizing during the betting for making each joke, only to then come back and make another, which is just the the cutest, horny, perverted thing I've ever heard, right? Like, what a what a gross, creepy, not-real uncle that Desmond Grell was just like, yeah, that's what I'd say if I was boning you. God, I'm so sorry, Kat, that I said that. God, what's wrong with me? Uh, I just love it. I'm in actual tears. I'm just like, poor Desmond Grell. <sighs> I yeah. love him. Actually, though, poor Desmond Krell. Yeah. But to get back to Horny, Lord Dustin. Ooh, this might be why Barbary. Oh, wow. Eliana, you sent me the meme the other day that I feel like really goes with this, that uh, Lord Dustin, when he beheld Cat naked, he said her breasts were enough to make him wish he'd never been weaned. And maybe that's why Barbary Dustin really hated Cat, you know? Uh-huh. What meme like, did I send? Uh... Just know whenever you feel bad that you're a point of contention for oh, someone yeah. else in their relationship, you know? Yeah. So, like, that's who, <laughs> at night, Kat was that point of contention. Eliana sends me a lot of memes. Mm. Uh, that was it. That's for that's why Barbara hates her so much. She's like, fuck me. Fuck my life. Every guy I have to fuck f- wants to fuck her. It's going good for me. Oof, that, that, that sucks. Mm. I just wanted right. to. I just wanted to add, body crazy curvy wavy big titties little waist body yada 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 yada. <laughs> because it's this, true. This lady, Catelyn Tully Stark, is a fucking fox. Ned Stark lucked out. Cat has the best rack in the realm, as said by the. Uh, I don't know if you've heard this this uh, artist in this series. He's Sir Mix of House a lot. He's oh had a lot God. to say about Cat. Like there's just oh so much about. <laughs> Oh my god. There's, um, this, there's this like this um this Wayne brother yeah, yeah, who's yeah, like yeah, like yeah, Sansa's yeah, yeah, mom yeah. has got it going on. Oh there's just god. a lot about cat. There's just a lot to appreciate. 
I will stop. But yes, cat and them big milf, mommy milker, <laughs> dockers, titties. <laughs> actually, oh. though, actually, though, like, yeah. and she's and she's out here holding it against other women that their their titties I are wish not she as was. nice as hers. Ooh. I wish she was holding oh. it against other. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, Chloe, oh. if I said your breasts were enough to make me wish I'd never been weaned, would you hold them against me? <laughs> That is a Valentine's <laughs> card. Can we make a Valentine's <laughs> card with that? Should we be making Valentine's oh. cards now too? Yes. No. Yes. Add card. it to the Red Western. Oh yes. Yes. Merch. 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 Uh, all right. We need to. We need to add some water and then it on gets this. Sad. You know. <laughs> then it gets sad. <laughs> Look, our whole thing is we get hypersexual and then we get sad, and then we get hypersexual. Are we hypersexual because of the sadness? thoughts sometimes it's a reaction you know sometimes you gotta fuck what is it fuck the pain away right oh yeah yeah and the words of and they believe that on the cinnamon wind yeah Yeah. the teachers of peaches what else is in the teachers of peaches huh what what (laughs) look catalan brings in that good old cassandra moment right and she wonders how many of the men here tonight will be dead before the year was done, much like Lord Dustin, who had ridden south with Ned. Too many, I fear, she thinks. And you know what? The answer is all of them. They all of them will be dead die. before the year is done. <laughs> That's it. That's wow. the take. What a come down. What a buzzkill. Bad, bad times for Team North. Stocks are bad. Oh. Sell, sell. Stocks are bad. Bummer all around. Uh, we're waiting for that. It's a bear market. Maybe. 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 Bear Island. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, Rob raises a hand and pronounces, "All right, the betting's begun. The musicians begin to play. They do the song. The Queen took off her sandal. The King took off his crown. And then the body jokes begin. And I'm just like, oh, interesting that the Queen took off her sandal because doesn't Sansa lose a shoe when Liza's like, mm-hmm. what if I just dangle you over the moon door? Total Cinderella story. Absolutely. Yes. Ooh, I'll read this one because that's my name. Yeah. Alex oh. Frey. Fuck that person. Oh. <laughs> uh, hold on. Let me, try, let me find a Frey voice. I hear Tully men have trout between their legs instead of cocks. Does it take a worm to make them rise? <laughs> That was, oh I, I don't know where that was. I'm sorry. No, I'm not sorry. Fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect. It's perfect. Mark Piper responds for Edmure. I hear Frey woman have two gates in place of one. And Alex quips back. Aye, but both are closed and barred to little things like you. <laughs> oh my this God. This is going. <laughs> I don't know, but you know what? I like it. Patrick Ballister. Thank you. Patrick Malister climbs a table, proposing a toast to Edmure's one-eyed fish. A mighty pike it is, he says, and Fat Walda yells out, I'll wager it's a minnow. The cry rises of bed them, bed them. The drunkest guests start to swarm the dais surrounding Rosalind and Edmure, lifting them up, tugging them with their clothing out and getting them going out of the room. Edmure's part is going swimmingly, but Rosalind isn't really faring as well. The great John arrives. Give this little bride to me, he bellows as he shoved through the other men and threw Rosalind over one shoulder. Look at this little thing. No meat on her at all. Catelyn felt sorry for the girl. Most brides tried to return the banter, or at least pretended to enjoy it, but Rosalind was stiff with terror, clutching the great John as if she feared he might drop her. 
She's crying, too, Catelyn realized as she watched Sir Mark Piper pull off one of the bride's shoes. I hope Edmure is gentle with the poor child. <laughs> poor yeah. Rosalind. It's awful. Ugh. Yeah. She's, she's, she's got a lot of other things to be crying about. You know, most people don't have to deal with a murder on their wedding, but... Mm-hmm. Unless they're Dothraki. Unless they're Dothraki. That's true. Then it's exciting. But it, it's contained, you know? It's not a mass slaughter. So I, I wanted to call out how Catelyn's story, like, she, she points out and, and sympathizes or empathizes here with, with Rosalind for that moment. Because as, as we've been discussing throughout this read-through, Catelyn's story is very much a realization of the terrors of womanhood. And it, it especially becomes so when she's rejecting it after the role of mother, right? Which she was supposed to play. It's stolen from her. She never takes on the role of queen. She always stays as mother and mother of the king. And gradually, throughout her chapters, building up to, you know, this moment, the ultimate chapter, not the penultimate, she's pondering upon the vulnerability of womanhood and and even motherhood, and she has especially done it in the context of her enemies, even if she doesn't always know it and doesn't know that they're enemies. But, you know, as we've stated before, she's looked at motherhood through the lens of Cersei and Jon's mother, and she wonders if they feel the same as her when it comes to their children and trying to understand if there is a universality to what she's feeling. And she's also considered in the context of Liza's failed marriage, right? And Liza's inability to live up to the duties, the role of wife. And then now here, as she like looks at the bait that her enemies have laid out, it's Rosalind. Um, and now she's thinking about like this really systemic rape of women and girls when it comes to marriage, but she doesn't think of it in those terms. She's just like, this is what we do, right? And in terms of like how their bodies are used as currency to buy men's armies, she used she was pondering that in her past in previous chapters. Um, now Rosin's being used to buy passage home, to buy power without having even the power to cover their own bodies or to bear them uh, as they wish, without the power to choose their partners. It's part of why she probably thinks of Sansa, too, and her wedding. And though Catelyn does pity these women, and she also thinks of like, mm, yes, I do know this feeling. It was a bad feeling, right? She doesn't reject it necessarily in those moments. It's only as Lady Stoneheart does she finally really come to that full-on rejection of womanhood as Westeros has defined it. Um, and, and she makes one more woman that she's projected onto, right? She projected onto Brienne in many ways, especially Brienne as a daughter, um, and turns Brienne into her enemy as she becomes this paradox, this really oxymoron within the faith of Westeros, and becomes Mother Merciless. Yeah, Kat's story with womanhood is so interesting because, like, Kat brushes up against the gas, the glass ceiling at almost every turn. And because of probably just the privilege that she has in her life, and then also just, like, mm-hmm. her own internal integration... Unlike characters like Brienne, like Cersei, she's not unhappy being a woman and or she's not unhappy with what she's perceiving a woman's role in Westeros to be. But so many times in the story, she's just kind of just it's almost being like just shown to her like you're the exception, like just because it worked out for you and you're happy, like this system of women being used as property, as pawn, as currency, it's not really great. And it's, it's really hurtful and just like the betting concept is just a micro uh, cosm example of how Westeros treats women. 
Like, it's especially if you think about it with the comparison that men are expected to sleep around. We know Edmure has slept around, so he's fucked before. Like, this is his first time. But imagine your first time having sex is surrounded by fucking people, like, hooting and hollering yeah. and after they undress you. So, again, uh, for, for the noble ladies in this, in this system. And so not even privacy is granted to women in this system. Like, there's all we all we see through Liza, like bodily autonomy and choice aren't there for women, but not even, again, privacy in this most intimate moment in your life, if you choose it to be that, because sex doesn't have to be that thing, but it, it does seem like it is in, in a lot of these cases. So th the fact that Kat is thinking about hers with those fond memories, again, like Kat is like the exception because she's found happiness and contentness within this Westerosi system, even as she realizes somewhat that is just not fair, not fulfilling, but she's fulfills like that, that tension, that contrast is really interesting as she encounters these other women in different stations. The, the autonomy being taken away is just so obvious, right? Uh, and I mean, that's what a lot of her plot has confronted is that she's always just said, fine. Sure, that's a variable I can't change. That's a controlled variable in the society that in order for me to do my duty, I do not get autonomy over myself. And it's kind of sad because she's thinking of her own bedding with kind of sorrow for those men who have died. But the happiest memories she has of these men is during her bedding that she didn't have a choice over. She just accepted it, right? Yeah. yeah. That's sad. That's depressing that that's the memory she has of them, of when they were boasting about how great her tits were and how great it is that Ned gets to, you know, bonk her. And I think it, it it's like what Alex was saying, right? Like the, she finds happiness in that moment because the rest of the system has worked out for her. So she can look back on it and be like, yeah, I guess that worked out for me. Mm -hmm. And therefore doesn't have any interest in being like, the system sucks. And even though, you know, she's seeing the suffering of other women until it starts getting taken away from her and she starts suffering even though she's like I feel like I did everything right so why me? When she's basically asking them to put her in jail after freeing Jamie, right? She's just like she's asking to get her autonomy taken away but they won't do it like this this fucking paradox of, of just being a woman in, in these hyper patriarchal societies is just like even when she does wrong she still can't be treated like she did wrong because she's mm -hmm. a woman and again, it's just like those fond memories of what you could argue is a violation, because as we see through Sansa, as we see through Asha, like women, they don't have the ability to consent or not consent. It's rather, are you going to go willingly or are we going to drag you or are going to put a fucking walrus yeah. in your place? Like there is no consent if that if that's if that could be, you know, an option, if that can be on the table. So for these noble women and, you know, and this again, this is the noble women. So whatever little dignities there might be there to at least make like a ceremony of it. If you're not a noble woman, you have to hope that your Lord doesn't believe in first night and wants to, you know, risk it with the, with the authorities. So this intersection of marriage and womanhood and your bodily autonomy is just, it, it's so interesting that Kat doesn't criticize it because again, like it worked out for her and she's not unhappy with it. Because she does have a, I think, a really good through line between her sex, her gender, and her role in the society. But then there's so many mm -hmm. other women that we see that just don't on any one of these axes. And, and we see that, that conflict there. And so, yeah, it's just really interesting for Kat to be like that perspective 
because in a lot of ways, Cat's the kind of best example of it happening. You could argue it's like either Cat mm-hmm. or Cersei for like where they end up in the social stratosphere, but they both are just unhappy in these different ways. Like Cersei, very contextual to her sex, but Cat, very contextual to almost just not being treated like as a real person who like mm-hmm. would not even be able to take responsibility for the things that she does. She's just like, okay, my brother's going to put me under house arrest, even though he technically doesn't have the authority to, but whatever. Yeah. And I would push back even a little and say that like, Kat does to an extent during this, like she's also not, it's not even that she's thinking favorably of it, right? Like she's thinking of just these like sad, miserable, like, oh, these guys are all dead now that we're all there at my own. And Mm. she's lost in the memories and everything throughout this entire chapter of her. All of these memories that keep coming back do feel hazy and she's focusing on them and she's looking for anything Besides the misery of the wedding, it's it's a garbage wedding. It's a very bad wedding. It's not good. And the signs are everywhere. And she's just kind of like languishing in these final thoughts. Not unlike how Ned languishes in his final thoughts and of his lost ones mm. and of the ghosts in his life, right? As yeah. her life is about to come to an end, whether she knows her head's going to be chopped off in front of the scepter not here. <laughs> you know, it, it's a very lateral end for them for their path intertwining at the very end that she's going to die though be brought back uh and as he died all he had was the misery of didn't i live a good life maybe did i question mark i don't know did i do the thing did i do it i had love enough for any woman didn't i like that's really what it is (sighs) (sighs) why'd y'all ask me for this chapter (laughs) that's good (laughs) You asked for this. I did. I asked for it. I wanted these sad feelings. <laughs> well, you want happiness. There is happiness, right? Some jolly music is happening. Yay. With the queen. The queen <laughs> is done taking off her sandal and she's taking off her kirtle, the king, his tunic. And Kat's like, I should join in on the wedding, the bedding, the wet bed, but I don't want to ruin their fun. Edmure would forgive her absence as well because she thinks there's no way that could be fun for him in any way, not for his minnow. As the couple is carried from the hall, she sees Rob chose to hang back as well. And she's like, oh shit, Walder's going to take that as further insult. Rob should have joined the betting, she thinks, but she doesn't think it's her place to tell him that. I just had the thought, like, it was probably expected that Kat would go. That might have been how she was supposed yes. to survive this. I believe yeah. so. I believe oh my God. so. This is her nexus point. This is her what if. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Had she gone? Yeah, she she could have just stayed in the room and just, you know, not seen all this. Damn. Because um, I, I, I wrote in the doc, I was like, what if Rob did go? Were they just going to like pull him from the room and be like, hey, can we go talk to you outside real quick and just like balk him over the head? But like he stayed in the hall, right? So that was, I think, clearly meant to clear out his guard who they wanted to get, you know, super drunk and stuff. But were they just, mm-hmm. are there nets in, in the bedchamber? They're just going to throw him over Robin Cat or something. But but yeah, I think that was what was supposed to happen. It was just expected that Cat would go because that's what you'd expect the lady to do. Yeah. Yeah. Oh fuck. <laughs> Especially for her brother. Yeah. Family duty honor. Well, they're not the only ones that stayed back, right? Peter Pimple and Waylon are there, but they're asleep. They're drunk. Merritt, however, pours another cup of wine. 
Wendell Manderly is attacking a lamb leg, and Walder is sitting in his seat. She could almost hear the old man asking why his grace did not want to see his daughter naked. Like, Kat's POV, like, George is just, he's just so sharp in this. Like, everything Kat says, if you were just casually reading, you know, it's just like, damn, this is a miserable event, but, you know, but just like these little points and comments and uh, like even even the comedy of the great john not being in tune with it it is showing you like things just aren't aligned like everything's amiss even the the festivities aren't aren't in sequence or not they're not harmonizing it's like every fucking mm. fracture point cat is pointing out yeah. yeah this is not the song of ice and fire uh. this is that that remix that that i don't know <laughs> well i hate this remix don't subscribe to the soundcloud um yeah, absolutely. And well, you know, he's not going to ask why Rob didn't want to see his daughter naked because he's going to kill him. The drums pound again. And Daisy's the only woman left behind except for Kat. And Daisy steps up to Edwin Frey, touching his arm lightly to maybe kind of ask for a dance. And he wrenches himself away from her with like unseemly violence. And he goes, no, he said too loudly. I'm done with dancing for the nonce! And it's like, whoa, homie, chill. But Daisy pales and turns away, and Catelyn got slowly to her feet and just suddenly wonders, what just happened there? Red flags! Red chilling, flags! Chilling, chilling. Uh, it is chilling, right? Something about the violence and this betrayal against Daisy, right? The only woman in Rob's guard, as I said, the Mary Magdalene. And I mean, she traded her armor for one night. She's always in armor. Mm -hmm. And in choosing to reject or accept her femininity in that choice, right? Like, that was a factor in her fate. That's what punches her in the gut. And I think especially as we move in with Brienne's chapters, we'll keep thinking of this. And in other characters in A Feast for Crows, like Sorella Sand, that have to kind of perform physically and succeed in that performance in order to survive or Cersei who uses her femininity as a weapon. Whomsie? Uh, Whomsie? Whomsie? Cersei? What? Cersei? <laughs> Cersei? Yeah. Uh, confirmed? Uh, yeah, Cersei confirmed? I mean, That's are... POV? Yes, nice. Oh my god. Uh, we're, we're taking it all back. No, I'm just kidding. But that that moment for Daisy, that's that's so sad that she, she gets so little time in the time she does get in her weakness of just like her weakness, her female weakness, right? Of dancing and enjoying songs and play, she gets killed. I mean, it sucks to get like, no, like, like without irony, like when you're at, you know, a party, an event, a club, and you go up to that mm -hmm. person, it's like, hey, you want to dance? They're just like, ill, no, right? Like that, that hurts. And then yeah. in this context, right? Like that's a public slight against a woman, mm -hmm. which could damage her reputation, you know? Like that. Uh, reputation culture right like oh mm -hmm. why didn't you know the phrase when i dance with this mormont girl what's wrong with her because of course it's gonna be what's wrong with her they're never gonna question the man but yeah just like that moment of daisy just wanting to dance you know it's a shitty wedding but it's still a wedding and to get rejected like that it is it's so interesting that you know that's like one of the last <laughs> catalysts that cat sees of like that's just <laughs> that's just wrong like, you, you dance with the girl. You dance with the girl. Like, what 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 just happened there? Yeah, that breaking of societal, you know, norms in that moment. You dance yeah. with a nice girl in a nice dress. Nope. That's the moment that really got her, right? Because she, she tells herself, you're seeing grumpkins in the woodpile, and 
You've become a silly old woman, sick with grief and fear. But thus, Cassandra's spider sense tingled for the last time. Yeah. Uh, Cat-Sandra. Cat-Sandra. Yikes. Yikes. And, I mean, it makes sense, right? She's doubting herself now, finally, in these chapters, because after being told she was wrong over and over again by, like, everyone in the previous chapters, even though, you know, she was right about Theon, all right? And then, like, takes all the grief and the shit from for the Jamie decision, even though Rob's like, yeah, I should have done that earlier. She's doubting herself when she shouldn't. She's like, I couldn't protect my kids. Like, I don't know shit. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, she, she says it, which, you know, makes good foreshadowing, right? Like, she just says it, like, I can't give into these doubts, right? And then the one time she, she does it, it's like, oh, wait, no, you really should have been listening to your doubts. <sighs> and yeah. she does everything she can to protect them, right? Like, even in the last chapter, she says, Edmir, we need to set our own guards. But this is the one place they all let their guard down because it was the place they knew they needed to perform the best. And... Uh, it, there's also something to be said that this was their only option and she reiterated this over and over again enough because I mean it was socially, politically, tactically this was their only option and in a way she needed to kind of convince Rob and Edmir and keep them convinced of that right because they could back out and they were what was driving this so even though she felt like the signs were wrong she also felt the need to keep driving them to it because it was their only choice and then it was also a bad only choice to have. Yeah. There was no other choice. <sighs> yeah, there wasn't. And, you know, that her realization of how things are going must have shown on her face because Wendell Manderley asks if something is amiss. I'm glad that he, you know, that he noticed. I'm glad that he cared. Yeah, George is like, I mean, this fucking chap, like, one of the reasons I, I wanted to be on this chapter is like, I think this is singularly one of the best chapters in the whole damn series. And just the little details of like these little character moments, just, I mean, you know, you could be like, oh, he just wants to pat it. He just wants to make it, you know, like more like this person's there and this person's there. But I do think it's like, yeah, Wendell Manderley, we know he has at least enough care about Cat or, you know, about like how things are supposed to be to be like, hey, you you don't look good. You okay? Like, you okay, hon? Like, you good? It's a wedding. Come on, there's lamb, you know? There's lamb and the jellied calves brains. That, that's yeah. the giveaway. Fuck. Uh, yeah. And yeah. she doesn't answer Wendell in this moment, though, because she gets up and she goes immediately after Edwin Frey because she's like, wait a fucking second. And then the music changes, someone hands the aux cord over, and a different song plays. No one sang the words, but Catalan knew the reigns of Castamir when she heard it. So I have a very stupid take. So my, my very stupid take for how Cat could have spun this moment. So just, so just go with me, right? We need, I need, I need brains yes, open. Yes, yes. So the reigns of Castamir start. Cat knows something's going wrong. What if she somehow reached into her sleeve, pulled out a microphone, and started around a karaoke? 
because oh who could resist a round of karaoke at a wedding, right? So Kat has to start the most impromptu version of the Reigns of Casimir. And who are you? Everybody, the oh Lord. As she's like going around, gives the mic to Rob. And Rob's like, what the fuck? He's like, fucking sing. And then, you know, Rob oh sings it, passes the mic. And then they Von Trap the fuck out of there. Like that. I mean, this is the worst squid game I've ever heard of. <laughs> This is. <laughs> I think that was. The I shared a god. <laughs> I shared uh, a god. Like I that shared is, a god. That's my last idea for how Rob could have avoided the, the red wedding. A little karaoke into the Von Trapp exit of the Sound of Music. It's definitely a Von Trapp. Like that is for sure. Oh, they got for Von sure. Trapped. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> Hired. Oh my god. Thank you. Put me on your team. Hired. I'm. Te- <laughs> oh uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's true. The karaoke would have helped. No, it, it, I feel like I feel like you're both very wildly underestimating the situation. <laughs> are we? Or are you underestimating called, the like, joy of music? Karaoke. 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 God, mm. two wrongs don't make a higher. You two. <laughs> yes, they do. Uh, we have two board votes. <laughs> Eliana, when we started this chapter way back when, we were very serious an hour and a half ago. Uh, when we started were this we, chapter, we well, when we started this chapter, uh, we talked kind of about the rhythm in the background, right? Uh, of the heartbeat of the whole entire chapter, and also of the drums and the boom, boom, doom. And here, Reigns of Castamere takes over and it becomes the steady beat, it becomes the melody. The chapter comes to its peak getting ready for its end and the drums have been carefully maintained and steadily increased rhythmically speaking and here we are and in aria 7 we're actually given the full lyrics to reigns of castamere just a few aria chapters ago with most of its careful references appearing throughout this book in characters like jamie's plot i thought there was something really poetic in that mirror of aria learning the reigns of castamere lyrics before this chapter, right, right when she's on the outskirts, and there's something else interesting about the structure of the entire chapter. Beric promises Arya, on his honor as a knight in that chapter, that he'll bring her back to her mother, right? Similar language with Catelyn in a little bit, on her honor as a Stark. Uh, and Top of Seven Strings then plays The Mother's Tears, When Willem's Wife Was Wet, Lord Hart rode out on a rainy day and the reigns of Castamere, which, chillingly, that mixtape kind of lines up with the entire plot of this chapter, right? Like, not saying Thomas Seven Strings knows shit, but he definitely, his playlist was a good soundtrack for this chapter. That was a good 8-track. You remember 8-track? Yeah. yeah. I sure do. The the mix, mm-hmm. the playlist, the yeah. playlist website? Yeah. Yep. Mad respect. Mad respect for 8-track. <gasps> oh, yep, yep. Though I'm trying to figure out whose wife was what. Willems. <laughs> uh, at the... Fat Walda, shit. Yeah, for real, though. Fat Walda's out there. She's like, I'm so rich and wet. <laughs> I'm or so all of them rich and Black wet. Walder, apparently. And <laughs> not around these you? bitches. And not around these <sighs> scheming, jealous, skinny bitches. I'm good. Oh my god. Fuck us skinny bitches. Fuck, Fuck you skinny, skinny bitches. bitches. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> well, 
there's that uh, there's that soundtrack of and who are you the proud lord said that i must bow so low and then she grabbed edwin by the arm to turn him and was like we are not doing get low and went cold all over when she felt the iron rings beneath his silken sleeve and who are you the proud lord said that i must bow so low like it is it's a fucking banger like this song slaps like this song slaps the way it's woven into this and uh, i mean again right like <laughs> the specific lyric to match up this like george yeah. george is setting this like pitch fucking perfectly like again because that's the fucking fray position that's the bolton's position like and who are you you know fucking starks of winterfell fucking tullys or wherever run that that i must bow so low so yeah, yeah it's like the the way that george is incorporating these songs to be a part of the mythos and part of the just plot is just just fucking genius and mm -hmm. i will give the show credit because the soundtrack slaps and yeah the reigns version you know like the fucking i i put it in a gif replied to the tweet of, of us recording you know like that moment where cat turns and it's just like just just the way like that sound change is like cat's moment of just being like fuck yeah <sighs> yeah yeah it is like fuck and also i mean this is this is what you're saying right like it's such a part of the mythos that they don't even need the words, right? She can hear it in her head, and they know. And I mean, like, this is what you're saying. This is the karaoke moment. Because it's just... It's just the instrumentals. Oh my god. Yeah, like, it is it is just instrumentals. And again, like, that internal mythos being so consistent, that just the fucking tune is enough to convey that meaning. Yeah. And yeah, like, um, like Chloe just mentioned, like, Arya learns about it later. Like, we learn about it separately but the the impact of it is in this moment where you know no words but the reigns of castamere is playing that's bad and it's also weird that people have been doing this like irl like thrones fans for their weddings i'm like did y'all read the books did y'all know what who would do that so i would do that chloe who would do that so i've heard people have done that get married and then talk to me okay <gasps> now that is tell me you're not okay. gonna do it Tell me you're not going to do it at your wedding, okay? My it's wedding, the song is going to be a uh, a mix that I'm going to hand uh, do oh myself my of Beyonce's Hello and Beyonce's Ave Maria that I will also be singing myself as well. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, I thought you were going to say that your mix was going to be The Mother's Tears When Willem's Wife Was Wet, <laughs> Lord Hart Wrote Out okay. on a Rainy Day. Okay. That's the reception playlist. That's the reception playlist. <laughs> I will be there, and I will eat two servings of jellied calves brains. Thank you. It's gonna be so good. Much. It's gonna be so good. Oh my god. Well, well I, you know what is really good. There's there's this really sad line that's my favorite because it just encompasses the whole chapter. Catalan slapped him so hard she broke his lip. Oliver, she thought. Perwin, Alessander, all absent, and Rosalind wept. Jesus wept. Yeah, that very Jesus wept moment, yeah. And, and Rosalind wept. And once again, Kat Stark is proving that she is absolutely about that action. Like, ah, uh, like, you know, that's her, like, E2 Brute, right? Like, she just slaps the shit out of him until yeah. she fucking breaks his lip. Like, yeah. you know, like, going out with defiance, <laughs> that's kind of, like, all you could do in this moment. So that is that is Kat's uh, act of defiance at this. Just a cat of a different coat right there. Yeah. 
Oh my god, uh, two ways to skin a cat, they say. And, oh god. Uh, Edwin shoves her aside. The music drowns everything out. Rob tries to block Edwin. A quarrel sprouts from his side. Catalan watches a second pierce his leg, and he falls. Half the musicians have crossbows. They're, uh, you know, dual employed. She runs to Rob, but she's hit in the back with an arrow. She falls to the floor and screams for Rob. She sees the small John wrestle, pro-style, a table off the ground, flinging it to protect Rob. Robin Flint is surrounded by Freys, their daggers falling on him. Wendell rises to his feet, but a quarrel punches through his open mouth, leaving through the back Sad. of his neck. Catalan's back was on fire. I have to reach him. Crazy. I wonder if her back is really hurting from carrying the first three books. Just kidding. It's because of the arrow. It's because of the arrow, everyone. <sighs> it's also what you said, but I, yeah. I will say, you know, it's a good thing that she feels that fire there because uh, that's what's going to bring her back. Yeah. yeah. That's it. <laughs> These are Your all bad jokes. And it's just like, why am fire. I here? <laughs> <laughs> More action. More action pops off, right? Raymond Frey is bludgeoned by the small John, but then the small John is brought to his knees by a crossbow bolt. Lucas Blackwood is cut down by Hostine Frey. Advance is hamstrung by Black Walder after wrestling with Harris High. Crossbows take Donald Locke, Owen Norrie, and a dozen others. Sir Benfrey seizes Daisy Mormont by the arm, but Cat watches her fuck him up with a flagon of wine. Get him, baby. Running for the door. It flies open before she reaches it, though, and Sir Ryman pushes into the hall, clad in steel from head to toe, with a dozen fray men at arms behind him, armed with heavy long axes. This one's a bummer also, and... <laughs> Catelyn, I mean, she thinks she's got it, and then it's like the round two of a boss fight. Yeah. And Catelyn's watching the northern men, like the Northmen, just get cut down, and we go through all their names and like those individual deaths. And just a few moments ago, we were reminded of people like Jory, right, at her wedding, and this scene as she's watching the Northmen fall around her and rem and calling each one out feels very much like a mirror to Ned watching his northern men, his get cut down in the streets around him when he was in King's Landing. He's like, what the fuck is going on? These are my men. These are my friends. And and he also knows all of them by name. Catelyn mm -hmm. <sighs> cries for mercy, but her plea is drowned by the noise. Ryman buries his axe in Daisy's stomach. Men pile in in shaggy fur cloaks, steel in hand. Ugh. For a heartbeat, Cat thinks Northmen and that their rescue has arrived. And I, I wanted to highlight that the text there, because the, the text is mercy, Catelyn cried, but horns and drums and the clash of steel smothered her plea. And so just kind of <laughs> like tying it back together to like the, the title of this book, A Storm of Swords, The Clash of Steel. And so, yeah, I think it's like because Cat is there when Renly and Stannis are having their parlay, The Clash of Kings. And now here in this book, which doesn't have like a lot of battles, but like in this, you know, Clash of Steel, yeah. it's the Storm of Swords. So again, just like kind of Cat being like that, that catalyst, that central character who's been carrying the whole book series. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to point that out there. And then also again, just like the, the cry for mercy that doesn't even get heard because yeah. of the, the Storm of Swords. Mm. Yeah. It is. And, and it's just so sad. Like, and it feels really pointed that that mercy goes 
ignored with you know what cat becomes yeah as lady stoneheart mother merciless and yeah and as you said that that gut punch of a moment where she thinks rescues arrived i will say you know at least with daisy you know at least she got to see this violence happen right before she died she knows she wasn't rejected because of anything about her it was just that they were being murdered mm-hmm. yeah and i feel like that would be meaningful to me that would mean a lot to me it's like oh you think i'm pretty <laughs> <Ugh>. <laughs> it's like so it wasn't so it wasn't me i'm not the problem yeah thank God. But I mean, that little that little yeah. moment, it was like fucking, yeah. uh, what was the movie? Seven, right? Like, mm-hmm. everyone's getting these, like, kind of uh, ironic deaths, you know? Like, Daisy yeah. getting in the, you know, stomach, aka the uterus area, the mandrily in the throat. Like, yeah, it's very, these very ironic deaths George mm. is just sprinkling in for everybody. They planned this. They planned this. They wanted to do this. Like, they, via George, wanted to really twist the knife for, for each of these deaths. Yeah. Mm. And, like, Small John's death is so sad. He gets his head taken off with two blows of an axe. And there's this line that's so... uh, It's shattering. Hope blew out like a candle in a storm. In the midst of slaughter, the Lord of the Crossing sat on his carved oaken throne, watching greedily. That's where it got me, right? Like that, It's all sad, but this line, oh, your stomach just turns. Hope blew out like a candle in a storm. And the Northmen, just the description of them showing up in shaggy furs with their steel to murder them. Roos's role outside of this actual chapter, I, I think it's forgettable, right? Because, because he's such a schemer. You don't really see to the average eye what he's doing. You forget that he masterminded so much of this, even down to this betrayal mm-hmm. of having Northmen come in to reinforce the murdering that's going on in the hall. And I think because Ramsay's torture is so grotesque and in your face, it can kind of overshadow Roos's cold fucking psycho killer whole ordeal but this is psychological warfare which you see when ramsey tortures theon it's pretty lateral in terms of how fucked up it is yeah i mean it's just pulling wounds off of a dragonfly and then saying on fire <laughs> like this is they're going for to make it personal and something else that um i wanted to comment on just tying back to the episode or two episodes ago with lady gwen where you talk about like she has that hope for brienne and here's another hope spot, right? It's the Northmen. It's hope. Mm. It's she just like keeps getting these little and just this part of the northern campaign from their perspective. It's a hopeful moment. We'll get the marriage. Yeah. We'll get our numbers back up and we'll go home. It's just like just hope, 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 hope. It just keeps getting taken away from them. So. So, yeah, when you're talking about yeah. Stoneheart being um, Mother Merciless is because, yeah, because she, she doesn't get mercy. She can't even hold on to hope. So what the fuck is left? Yeah. I, I like that idea, that tying of mercy and hope, that, I mean, mercy needs hope, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like, the two have to go together. Well, it only gets worse from here, because a dagger sits on the floor. <laughs> Catelyn forces herself towards it. Here's another moment of hope, right? The taste of blood in her mouth. She's telling herself she's going to kill Walder Frey, and Jingle Bell is closer to the knife than she is, so they're hiding under a table. But he cringes away as she grabs the blade, and th- this is the hope, right? She's like... I will kill Walter Frey. I will kill the old man. I can do that much at least. And you know what? She doesn't make it. She doesn't make it. But <laughs> this, 
even if it's a, a, a this moment, right, as, as hope starts dying, it's a moment where Catelyn really, as Lady Stoneheart, I think begins to emerge because finally she's like letting that lust for vengeance that she's been feeling all these past few books. And is, she said it aloud, but she continues to stifle it. And she contains it for just a few more moments as, again, there is still that hope. And as you said, she's begging for mercy for her son's life. And so it's not fully there yet, but she's Lady Stoneheart's crowning. Jesus, she's crowning. Uh, She's crowning. And worse yet, Rob struggles to his feet. Three arrows scattered through him. And Walder raises a hand. The slaughter pauses. The music stops. All but one drum. Catelyn then hears a distant battle and Grey Wind. Grey Wind howling in the distance. She remembers too late. The king in the north arises. Seems we killed some of your men. Your grace. Oh, but I'll make you an apology. That will mend them all again. <laughs> like, literally the pettiest, weaseliest bitch-ass bitch in the whole fucking series. Like, fuck you, Walder Frey. Like, just all the fucks in Westeros, Essos, Planetos, and Universos. Just all of the fucks for you. Like, you <laughs> petty-ass little bitch. Yeah, and he's but he's gonna make an apology. Walder Frey's his own apologist this episode. <laughs> oh Walder Frey's the Frey sympathizer. I don't know him. I don't know him. <laughs> it was like it was like literally like in every sense overkill. Like it, it, all of it was pretty unnecessary. Walder Frey though coming in, he's just like it's just a prank, bro. And I'm oh like, no, God. people are dead. This it's is not like, a prank. It's like this Winston from funny. New Girl. You just got Waldered. Like. <sighs> Literally, everyone's <sighs> bleeding out around Rob. He's like, dog, my bad. <laughs> it's good, right? That's how it works, right? Isn't uh, that what you did, right? Just say it's okay. Uh, it wasn't really the same, Walder, but that's okay. Catelyn, in in response to this, she does take a little bit of a, a little bit of a power move. Not really a power move because it's Jingle Bell. So it's kind of fucked up and grabs Jingle Bell by the hair, pulling him up with her dagger to his throat. She thinks of Bran's sick room, the feel of steel at her own throat. The drum went boom, doom, boom, doom, boom, doom. She begs Walder to let her first and last son go, that they'll take no vengeance. He asks if she takes him for a fool, and she says she takes him for a father. Keep her hostage, Edmure as well, if he lives, but let Rob go. Yeah, and here's where the daddy issues come out, right? Because apparently some fathers in this in this book just don't care. But anyway, but this is the moment, right, where where Catelyn is losing her faith, and again, Lady Stoneheart starts manifesting more because you know we were talking episodes ago about that idea of Catelyn and and Catholicism, and that idea of like you know we will forgive this and we will forget it and and that idea of forgiveness in general i think is such a very core part when it comes to christian philosophy and and catholicism depends on maybe but like the the faith of course is very much inspired by catholicism though you do see aspects of christianity show up in some of the other religions like baptism with the ironborn etc but cat offers it again once more and then her faith right which is like so core to westerosi society I mean, it, it doesn't save her, and what does bring her back is a red god who's going to give her what she wants, and she's no longer forgiving, and she's no longer forgetting, because it was not 
just a prank. No April Fools it was here. Bad. <laughs> no April I, Fools yeah, here. Yeah, don't use my birthday no, in that vein. How dare sorry, you? Sorry. How dare you? No, no white elephant Christmas party. That's oh better. Thank oh you. Oh my god. Thank you. Thank you. It's like if he wanted to be mad, he just had to withdraw his support and be like, "You can't cross." Yeah. Not all this. Yeah, just just this go around, though. Just go around, bro. Well, Rob whispers, "Mother, no!" And Catelyn tells him to get up, to just walk out, and to save himself. If not for her, then do it for Jane. Oh, yeah, I mean, this part is it's tough, yo. Like, like we've said before, like the stark position from the beginning was they were fucked. They were late to the party. Everyone else had their plans in motions. And something that Eliana, like what I really appreciate uh, through this cat journey with y'all is that Eliana specifically just keeps mentioning like Rob's age. He's fucking 16. He's not equipped to be king of anything much less these two kingdoms in this war and so i have in in previous you know my fan life i was just like by this point rob is probably done like he might not have been trying to like you know suicide by cop slash fray but like i feel like up until the you know last ditch effort to go reclaim the north from the ironborn that there was like no exit strategy there was no win condition they were just fucked and lost and rob was just kind of not even treading water but just like fuck we're just we're just fucked we're just fucked we're just fucked and so like in this moment where he's just like no like like go out for what like what am i supposed to do like i he's right to assume his army is just getting slaughtered at the moment so even if the phrase they're not but even if he did walk out what would he walk out to just to be one rob stark alone in the world alone in this you know now occupied hostile riverlands to swim his way past the neck and go to the burnout husk of Winterfell. Like he's got nothing. And like even Jane, right? Like his wife, he, he loves her, but still it's just like, what's he going to do to protect her? Yeah. And I don't know if he loves her enough. And it's what you've called out is, I think really important because we don't get Rob's POV and we do talk about it, but this is something that, that we didn't really bring up, but we did to some extent. But has he given up because he feels he deserves it? Because he feels that by letting Theon go, he killed his brothers. Yeah. Does he, is he giving up? And he's like, this is payment for my sins, right? Like for, for everything that's happened. And, you know, not only that, like, I mean, this is fucking tiring for 16. He's going through puberty. He's got a, his dad died. And, and like you said, he's the only one left. And it's very, like, if his mother's gone, if his father's gone, if his brothers are gone, if everyone's gone except for, like, one sister who's now out of your grasp, it's very much Miri Mazdur asking and telling Danny, like, look at what life is worth when all the rest is gone. Yeah. Yeah. And bringing up Danny, like, the, the, again, these leaders that are forced into these impossible situations, these young leaders, you know, they, they don't have the bandwidth or the resources in the middle of a rebellion, in the middle of a war. It, how could he do more? You know, he's at his limit. He's had every part of him, every oath he's had to swear and vow tested in some aspect at this point, and they all just want to go home. <sighs> Rob's voice was whisper faint. Mother, no. 
Yes, Rob, get up. Get up and walk out. Please, save yourself, if not for me, for Jane. Jane? Rob grabbed the edge of the table and forced himself to stand. Mother. Walder snorts, asking why he'd allow any of that to happen. Cat digs the blade deeper into Jingle Bell's neck. A foul stench reaches her nose. Jingle Bell, likely. Uh, but she pays it no mind. Sir Ryman and Black Walder circle round her back. But she doesn't care. She thinks they could do as they wished. Imprison her. Rape her. Kill her. It made no matter. She had lived too long. And Ned was waiting. It was Rob she feared for. She raises her knife, telling Walder, on her honor as a start, she'll trade Rob's life for Walder's son. A son for a son. But Walder says, that's a grandson, and he was never much use. Ugh. Ableist ass bitch. Absolutely. I can't wait till he dies. Yeah. That That is what it is, right? Like that Jingle Bell doesn't matter to him because he sees him as nothing but empty, a simple boy, you know, vacuous, a simple man. And it's awful because that's the saddest sound. That's what the ghost of High Heart says to Arya is that when Kat chooses vengeance against someone else who is helpless in this system, Jingle Bell, she's trading her honor in this moment for that vengeance, even though she knows it means nothing to him. Yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> and so, instead, what happens is once more, hope is blown out. Because Reese Bolton steps up to Rob in his dark armor and a pale pink cloak, spotted with blood. Talk about red flags. <laughs> this is it. The literal red flag. But when you're what Eliana was saying about like Rob feeling guilty, I think he did because we see in both Kat's POV and Ned's POV, they do internalize their own actions and like hyperinflate the consequences. And so like as Ned is, you know, in the black cells, as Kat is a POV over these mm. three books, they do really take on that that sense of like, this is all my fault, like I've deserved this. And so I also think part of Rob's like, like ultra depression is that same concept, right? Like he feels responsible, like he let everybody down, like he tells Kat, like I've made a mess of everything, I lost my family. Um, and then tying it back to like this moment that just happened, one of the tenets of, of Roos Cat, one of my favorite little minor crack ships, is that Roos could have again been working for that plausible deniability, and Cat doesn't explicitly say it's Roos Bolton. She just says a man. So again, you know, it's a crack ship, it's never gonna happen, but it's just really interesting because we can tell by the colors that these are Bolton colors, but the fact that Cat doesn't say a Bolton man or Roos Bolton. Just to give you like that little mm. bit of plausible deniability for this, like, because again, yeah. I think that cat was supposed to be at the bedding being abducted with Edmure. So I don't know. And a, a counterpoint that I had from Rowan was saying she was thinking that Roos wouldn't do the dirty work himself. And I was saying like, no, Roos totally would do the dirty work himself. Like, this is the person that likes picking the wings off dragonflies. So I, I do think that this man is Roos Bolton, even though cat doesn't specifically say Bruce Bolton. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And there's something about, like we said earlier, the haziness uh, that at this point, she's so disconnected from reality and what's happening around yeah. her that all she sees is the flash of pink and red. Doesn't even yeah. identify who it is. And as she becomes Lady Stonedheart, you know, it, it becomes more and more black and white or pink and red. 
Yeah, she stopped seeing people as individuals. You're a Frey, you're dead. Yeah. You're a Bolton, you're dead. You're, yep. you're a Lannister, you're yeah. dead, Brienne. It's like, no, I'm not. I'm like, nope, you're a Lannister. I mean, that's what happens dead. if you accept yeah. that golden cock, you know? <laughs> Who said that? I'm so sorry. Who said that? All right. This is it. This is the end. Jamie Lannister sends his regards. He thrust his longsword through her son's heart and twisted. Rob had broken his word, but Catelyn kept hers. She tugged hard on Aegon's hair and sawed on his neck until the blade grated on bone. Blood ran hot over her fingers. His little bells were ringing, 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 and the drum went boom, doom. Finally, someone took the knife away from her. The tears burned like vinegar as they round down her cheeks. Ten fierce ravens were raking her face with sharp talons and tearing off strips of flesh, leaving deep furrows that ran red with blood. She could taste it on her lips. It hurt so much, she thought. Our children, Ned, all our sweet babes, Rickon, Bran, Arya, Sansa, Rob, Rob, please, please, Ned, make it stop. Make it stop hurting. The white tears and the red ones ran together until her face was torn and tattered, the face that Ned had loved. Catelyn Stark raised her hands and watched the blood run down her long fingers over her wrists beneath the sleeves of her gown. Slow red worms crawled along her arms and under her clothes. (laughs) It tickles. That made her laugh until she screamed. Mad, someone said. She's lost her wits. (laughs) And someone else said, make an end. And a hand grabbed her scalp just as she's done with Jingle Bell. And she thought, no, don't, don't cut my hair. Ned loves my hair. Then the steel was at her throat and its bite was red and cold. Usually we uh, have other people do voices also, but I was like, I think Alex is doing a fantastic job. Alex had job. it. I'm just going to let them keep going. I, I was like, I can't, I was I'm like, not going to stop. Like I'm not going to stop them. But like, I didn't see anyone no. like, kind of moving forward. So I was like, I no, guess I'll just we keep were going. Like, no, we were like, no, we're going to let Alex do all of it. <laughs> <laughs> in that moment, we both decided we were like, that's it. You were in it. I couldn't thing. interrupt that. Yeah. That was... <laughs> no, I was like. That was hurtful. This is it. This is perfect. Oh, I'm in pain. That was. <sighs> Fuck. <laughs> like, that was. <laughs> You did great because you somehow saw it through to the end and made an end of it. I mean, that's also it. Yeah. You just brought it to life and it was just so emotional. Before you killed it. Loud. I was like, I, 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 need to let, I need to let this happen. Yeah. <laughs> it was so good. Thank you for that, for everything, because now it hurts. Everything hurts. And I think this is uh, as good a time as any for us to transition to the outro of Catalan's character. An overview of Catalan and, and what's to come. I'm very sad. I'm like, wow, my chest hurts. You know, wow, that was awful. Now that's just that was just like the appetizer. Now we get to fight about these cat opinions. <laughs> I don't know about fighting. I'm gonna be honest. I think we're we're weary of fighting. And as we close out Catalan's character and talk about kind of what her arc meant, 
I think there's uh, something we brought up a lot in the beginning of our analysis in A Game of Thrones and in A Clash of Kings was how Daenerys's plot and Catelyn and Rob run so parallel to her, right? And there's a certain framing in mythology and in folklore and different stories of women, not unlike Catelyn, like Cersei, Medea, Cassandra, being portrayed as mad women, right? Losing their wit, sorceresses out of their mind. Catelyn herself is painted by many readers and the series is having what's kind of called the Medusa gaze, right? In contemporary in the book Medusa Gaze in Contemporary Women's Literature by Gillian Albin, it breaks down that in societies that commonly place women under the power of a panoptic gaze, the Medusa gaze is an inspiring force available for women to claim for themselves in order to remain strong and resilient against assault under the public eye, which values women as more or less attractive objects. Medusa herself is seen kind of like an oxymoron, not unlike Cat. She's a victim, but a predator. Her gaze destroys, but protects. Her blood kills, but it also gives life. Catalan's a character that encompasses this, what it means to be seen by a female's character's eye and what power they do hold. And George chose that when setting up her point of view, right? He chose uh, what would happen to Arthur's mom in playing with these power roles. Cat's seen as someone sometimes obsessed to honor and pride to a fault, right? Only outwitted by being too compassionate as a mother and leader and caught between what's actually right and wrong, led down false paths by people who proclaim to be allies, family, and not. I think the framing and cattle and losing her wits in having a mother's madness, a woman's madness, it's bullshit, right? It's a go-to framing for the Frey campaign throughout Westeros after this for the Boltons. For the Lannisters, anyone who's been through trauma of war and grieving and marriage and, of course, death of your family in that proximity would be anxious, nervous, and driven to a complete mental breakdown as she loses not only the end of her family, but the last bit of control she's ever had to what's happening around her. Even before the wedding really kicks off in this chapter, her thoughts are disconnected from the reality of what's happening, and she's moving in a haze. She's exhausted from grief. Her death is a mercy kill, in a way, even though she doesn't even get that, right? She doesn't even get the mercy of that death. She's brought back by fire, which, of course, as I mentioned earlier today, I think that that ties in so closely with Arya's plot and return to the Riverlands and Arya's search for mercy and understanding the way the world works herself. You know, I love how you've really, like, tied it all together in this idea of of madness because i mean it's not just madness it's grief and she's like i mean she's got a lot to be angry about it is a yeah. it is absolutely understandable that she is quite mad at the things that have happened in this moment again walter frey will have to apologize for himself today <laughs> and i love how you've brought in medusa the medusa gaze I forgot that I, I had written an essay long, long ago called The Gorgons of Winterfell in July 2013, because I've been waiting for the winds of winter for a very long time. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've been waiting for so long. And, and I mean, like, Catelyn's daughter, right? She is very explicitly tied to the Gorgons in, in that one prophecy that portrays her with purple serpents in her hair Mm -hmm. catelyn um is very much like the gorgons in like there's some things that i'm like i stretch too far in this essay and like this is bullshit now but some of it in terms of the idea of like the gorgons they have connections with water right just like catelyn does and then also 
Steno was like known for being the most ferocious of the Gorgons and apparently uh, had killed more men than both of her sisters combined and her name translates Good to like the mighty or the forceful and also um, mm. one of our friends angry biologist points out that Catelyn's face after yeah dying um, literally resembles one of the depictions of the Gorgons which is and from Medusa solving the mystery of the Gorgon it's the decaying head of someone dead for a period ranging from a few days to one or two weeks shows many of the features that would come to be associated with the Gorgon. Bulging eyes, which, like a parody of a stare, grossly protruding tongue, puffy, and lines, lined facial skin. Mm. And then also, Steno, unlike Medusa, was immortal. She un- exchanges her mortality to undergo the transformation that taking blood from the right side of her um, does. And the, w- that blood has the ability to bring the dead back to life. And then also in terms of her being angry, Mary Valentis and Anne Devan reveal in their book Female Rage, unlocking its secrets, claiming its power, that when they asked women what female rage looks like to them, it was always Medusa, though none of the women they interviewed could remember the details of the myth. It's just become very, very tied together. And again, there's a lot to be mad about because they gave her a path to happiness and they blew it up. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> they blew it up. I mean, well, even even if we're talking about like the madness or something, like sh- along with the mythological element, just the way that women are seen with their emotions, right? Like hysteria, right? Yeah. Like, just the framing of this. There is just so much misogyny in the way that women are just viewed in general, but particularly when it comes to expression. And even when mm-hmm. we see Cat act, there's always that element of she's acting out of her place. Like it's not a woman's place to be doing these things. Like she, and it's one of these, these contradictions in these, in this tension in, in Kat's POV, because as we get to spend time with her, like we're aware of just how capable, how astute, how just plugged into the Westeros network that she is, but she doesn't, she isn't allowed to operate into her best capacity and just keeping her in this position, taking away her autonomy, taking away her choice, taking away her agency, just reduces her to the state where, yeah, it's totally a futile jester um, slapping uh, Edwin and, and killing Jingle Bell. Um, but what else does she have? Mm-hmm. She's literally in that position with nothing else but her just body. And she can only just act with her body because everything else has been stripped away from her. So framing mm-hmm. that as a sort of madness, it's it is such a, a con job by the patriarchy to just put this person in this position and then blame themselves for reacting to it. Mm-hmm. And that's right. It. Like we killed your kids. <laughs> yeah. She went mad. What? Like, come on, bro. So there's it's just, that. It's a wedding. <laughs> it's a wedding, bro. <laughs> uh, yeah. We, we just slaughtered everything. Took the loss of your kids. And like, what? Oh, you mad. You mad. And then it's just like, what the fuck? Of course she's mad. You can't pull that on her. It's not fair. Uh, or and it's not fair to call it uh, also like you like madness, you know. Like this is a completely rational response of anyone going through what Catelyn Stark is going through. What else uh, are you going to do? Like, it, I think there's two things you do in that situation: stand up and die like Rob, stand up and try to take someone with you like Cat. Like, there's like, yeah. What, what other options are there besides karaoke? There are two wolves with two <laughs> wolves inside you and. One wolf has given up on life. The other wolf has also yeah. given up on life, but at least tries to bite someone on the way out. Like it's yeah. 
There are two wolves inside you, but unfortunately we did not bring them to the wedding. <laughs> we left them outside in the kennels. And then we killed uh, them too. Yeah, yeah. And coming back to the to the sounds and the way that George uses the sounds in this chapter, right? I, I love that call out of the tiny tinkling of jingle bells uh, i guess jingle bells as she's breaking it's very much like her own moment of i guess the bells if you will um you were you were talking about daenerys's plot right and and that parallelism so i i wonder if that's something there because mm-hmm. yeah that i i also like you know you were talking about this idea of patriarchy, and it's kind of sad that, like, in other parts of this book, and especially within this book, so much of Kat's story is focused on her relationship with her father. She also, of course, Edmure, because he's, like, right there, and, and that tension that you've called out between them. And then even, like, in regards to having always done her duty for Brandon Stark, but in her final moments, Kat comes back to Ned, because she's getting close to him, right, with that death. And, I mean, it's sad for many different reasons. There's a million reasons for it to be sad. I mean, obviously, it is just... It's just sad yeah. um, because they were in love, but mm. also with their babes gone and, and taken from her. And again, motherhood being taken from her. She's back to the role of just wife, but to whom? Because he's dead. And she thinks of the face of that Ned that she loved and, and destroys her own body. And I mean, again, who said only lions have claws like in that song? Cat. I mean, lions are just big cats, okay? They are a subgenre of cat. And... Checks out, checks she, out. Yeah, she's using her cat claws to mutilate herself. And the one thing she asks is that her hair remain untouched, cat of a different coat, because it's the hair that Ned loved. And and it's just it just comes back to, again, her positioning herself against a man. And I think that's kind of sad in a different way. Mm-hmm. But it's just a great last few moments as it's written the closing of the chapter with the bells ringing and and i i think it's interesting the way they portrayed it on the show and i think that was successfully done too but what i love about here at the end because we have cat's interiority it actually wasn't a quiet moment at all right like the drumming is still fucking happening and this is i think the loudest point in the chapter because Cat's internal thoughts are just, it feels just like screaming, right? It's all chaos. It's all like jumbled now. It's stream of consciousness, but not quite because we still have that chronology. But, you know, this is this is the loudest part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'd i watched the uh, Reigns of Casimir episode with, with Rowan um, a couple days ago. And it was, I had forgotten. I mean, I knew the Red Wedding happened. And I like, I remember that scene. But it's like in the context of an episode, I forgot how they depicted it. And they were going mm-hmm. for like the sudden shock factor because the uh, they love doing that. Yeah, this yeah right because the scenes in the twins are only the the stingers of the episode. They start and conclude the episode, but the majority of the episode is like here's John and Egret, here's whatever, whatever, whatever. And so then you go back to the wedding, and uh, it kind of just starts off at the the actual ceremony and then the the feast. But yeah, just like that moment of cat, like I do think that was really effective acting on Michelle, like where she was doing the pleads, like Rob, get up, like get up, please, like please. Like that was that was really you know difficult to watch because she's really putting it all in there. And when it does come to like that final after she's just like silent. Uh, Ron was saying like, you know, they didn't do the they didn't they didn't even put the effort to do the prosthetics for like her wrecking her face and that should have been like the stone heart clue that we were gonna get her. 
But again, like kind of just showing because we don't get her internal thoughts and it's not like in a moment like that, she's going to be like, you know, like, like it's fucking Hamlet. Like, and then in this moment, I think of all I've lost as, you know, so I do think ugh, I don't want to give the show credit. I'll give Michelle Farley credit. I think she acted very well in that scene. But yeah, it's just really interesting how in this moment, still in the book, reading it, it is still very loud. It is still very chaotic. It still is keeping that that pace, that boom, boom, boom of the drum with all these different beats. So yeah, it's just a very powerful scene as far as like a, a character moment goes, because I mean, there's not a lot of POV deaths because Quentin was pretty quiet, right? Just, oh, he began to scream. Like it's not this prolonged sense of like dread and suspense and action. It's like, mm -hmm. I'm doing the thing. Oh fuck, I'm not, <laughs> right? Like, I think it's a really powerful choice to have Kat go through these emotions and show these emotions and then also show how this is being framed as an act of madness when, as we're all arguing, like, what the fuck else was she going to do? Truly, what else? <sighs> yeah, and then they, they even chose to, like, prolong that silence into the, what is that called, ending credits? But, but Yeah, yeah I think it was, like, the <laughs> only episode that didn't have, like, an ending song play was the, huh. the Reigns of Castamere. I know that. And I will say that the the killing of Lady Frey is also well chosen because I think it might have been a better choice to hone in on that for Kat's particular arc than it was to kill a helpless child, which is kind of not a very cool move compared to her who protected her child, who was unable yeah. to protect himself in the face of a killer. So I, I, I do respect the show on that one, that they change it to Lady Frey, because I think that could be like a even darker parallel for Kat destroying, you know, everything the patriarchy's done to her. Well, I mean, in that same episode, they had the phrase kill uh, Talisa, right? So lots of violence on women. <laughs> but I, I do like this one because for me, that's, this is, again, this is the moment that Lady Stoneheart is born because now she's like, yeah. fuck it, we're killing innocents too. We're killing the kids. Mm -hmm. Fuck it. Fuck it. They snatching your yeah. people up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh. Anyway, so now she's dead, right? As we move forward in this outro, but she's also back because it's Halloween, and this is the time things like that happen. But but also because of the epilogue, and we know that she is Lady Stoneheart. Yeah. So as we're getting introduced to Lady Stoneheart in the epilogue, I do love that we have the snow in the autumn in the Riverlands. It's a natural, Merit Frey thinks. I'm like I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. All right. Depends on where you live. I, I guess he calls out it's in the Riverlands. But I'm like. It makes sense to me that this is like setting the stage for her because that's her. She's the snow in autumn in the Riverlands. She's got hair like autumn. She's the north, mm -hmm. which is her second home, coming down to bring vengeance upon her first home. And then also to just really drive that point, like she's garbed all in gray, the colors of House Stark. As I was thinking about like Kat's POV and just some of the things that we've been touching on here, when we think about like the legacy of cat, right? Like there's obviously Stoneheart, but, and even with Stoneheart, like what's that going to do? And then I was thinking about it in the context of what cat is saying repeatedly to Rob about legacy, about songs, about what it meant. And I, this is something that's kind of come more to a forefront in the last couple of years, but I was thinking about this in the context of the black lives matter movement or BLM and the idea of your life being a hashtag. And as Kat is saying Rob, to Rob, like, your life is worth more than a song to me, I'm thinking about the mothers of the movement where mothers of some of these slain 
people just talked about like what it meant to have your child die and in this way and what that meant for you, what it meant for your lives, the rest of your family. And it's it was such a strong tie to Kat for me as we've kind of just been going through Kat this year where you do see her arguing time and time again for Rob to essentially abdicate, like sue for peace, give up the crown. Like your life means more to me than the song of the young wolf. And for and as a person who's black in this country to have the idea of my life only mattering as a hashtag, if I'm lucky and it mm. goes viral and people care, like that was just such a a moment of realization of what that meant for George to put this in the story. Because again, like he he starts out of you, if you guys have pointed out before, where he wants to talk about like King Arthur's mom. And I do think that's just such a powerful framework for this. Because particularly in the context of Rob Stark, sometimes it does feel like we and like we as the whole fandom just kind of like gloss over it, right? Like, yeah, he was like kind of the best king at the start, but you know, it's really going to be about King John, King Bran, Queen Sansa at the end. And because they're family, of course, they're going to care more about Rob. But just like, what does that mean to just take this person who we see live? And through Cat, we have all these moments of like, I remember when you were a baby. And what I want more for you is just to just fucking live. And even mm -hmm. as Kat is making all these different compromises, even as she's kind of conceding some of her other children, she's just like, I, like your life just means more to me than this. And thinking about how in the last year in this nation, we've just seen so much more police violence towards black people towards indigenous folks, towards Mexican Americans and other people in this country and what it means for their families who are left behind carrying on that legacy. And the sentiment of like, your life is worth more than a song is worth more than a hashtag. It leads to me, your family. But then you have this other way to look at it is what does Rob's life mean in the context of Northern independence, right? Like th this person becomes a symbol for them. He becomes that martyr. And the North might, I mean, they don't want Rob dead, but they are using that narrative. So comparing the tension between his legacy of like the North as part as like, you know, that um, chain of rulers compared to Kat, who's just like, I'm seeing you as a person. And I like, I want you to live. I want you to give up. I want you to live past this. And even in the final moments of Kat and Rob's interaction where she's just like, walk out of here. Like, yeah. Like, what is that? What does that mean for a mother, for a family member to just have their heart break in front of them because their their child is is killed in this grotesque and for the record, illegal way? But, you know, what, what, what can you do? And so, yeah, like now Rob Stark is part of this this song of Northern Independence. And we do all assume, you know, the wolves are going to come back again, the wolves in the night, like this song of him. But it's just it's just something that. I grapple with just on a personal level to know that, yes, that's objectively a good thing because it is going to bring in their world and ours, hopefully a push towards this justice. But what does it mean for the people who are lost? Rickard Karstark, right? His sons, they were worth more than just like a song in the Northern Independence mm -hmm. chapter. He fucking tanked and committed treason for it. And these are, you know, like high lords and ladies. So much less what is, you know, the random... Dustin Banner person think or the Smith in the White Harbor who their children died 
like they're also a part of this movement they're also a part of this but they don't get the same songs they don't get the same hashtags and so just thinking about cats especially this last part of her arc where she is just more heavily talking about like you mean more to me than this than this movement than this song than this push for northern independence because i want you to live and rob doesn't and if cat doesn't then she kind of does so yeah just like in the context of this story even though we do think that you know the starks are going to rise again the wolves are going to come back we still are losing people and that still hurts and that still matters and sometimes i do have to like kind of caution myself to not just like think of rob's terms as like okay rob you could have done this you could have done this well you fucked up but don't worry john's going to take it for a while then sounds going to take it then it's all going to be good but rob was a person <laughs> rob lived and rob died and rob got killed in this really awful way and so did cat and so what does that legacy mean like because i'm sure it's like we we know it's not a, it's not a question like all of them want rob back all of them want cat back but this is what they're left with is just the song of them. Yeah, absolutely. And and I thank you for like sharing everything that you did. And you see this on this like really personal level and how it connects to your life. And in terms of the violence that marginalized people, you've tied it to the experiences of what black people face. And yeah, it, it, there's, there's that element of in which the legacy, to what extent is it under your control anymore, right? I think... Kat is trying to exert it, but, you know, when it came to Brynn and Rickon, like, she had hoped to have more control over, like, what that narrative is, what that legacy is, and having agency, and, and as opposed to it being warped into some other thing, into some other memory. Yeah, I mean, they don't even get the truth. Meaning. Yeah. Yeah, like, you're right, they don't even get the truth. Like, then, like, how do you keep it so that your death still has meaning? in and of itself and doesn't become even though I, I guess you know arguably the books say men's lives have meaning the other deaths but anyways um but I, I think that that's another side of what you're saying here right that to cat rob's life had meaning not his death not him becoming a martyr or not murder murdered in the rallying cry yeah yeah, and, and it's true that the Stark kids are going to carry that legacy on, right? As Kat is forced to become a silent sister and has her voice box pretty fucked up from all of this as she goes on to become kind of an agent of fiery vengeance, right? As we finish finish out Kat's arc as she's brought back to life later on. Yeah, this, this silent sister aspect is so interesting because, like, Kat, I mean... We do talk about like how she can't use her voice to affect this political change a lot, but she is very she's a POV, right? So we do get a lot of her thoughts. But then being brought back in this in this way to again just be like in the beginning of, of Storm, just you are repressed in a way. You you can't leave this room. You can't speak now. You can't you can't do these things. Like yeah. that's just such an interesting way to take this person who at one point was probably had the kind of the most agency because she goes from like Winterfell to King's Landing to the Vale mm, to River Run yeah. to the Reach, uh Caswell's Keep to Storms In and Back. So again, like she moves around so much and then just keeps getting more and more restricted and now doesn't have a voice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she doesn't have a voice and she's lost everything that she wants, but as as Lady Star Stoneheart is finally acting upon her desires, she's kind of become pure id in terms of that vengeance and like that I want, I want, I want that's been going through her entire storyline 
rearing its head again in Brienne's chapters, right? As Brienne's told, well, she wants this, she wants this, she wants this, because she can't speak for herself anymore because she's been silenced, but yet she's getting to exact that will, um, even though her voice, again, is taken from her as it always has been. And then they, it, there's something there, too, when it comes to what you want, right? Um, being And being able to carry that through, she forces Brienne to choose and I, I find that interesting because, as you pointed out, she had agency in a lot of what we've seen of the story, but she hasn't always throughout her life, as we see in her memories, and has been denied choice herself. And she's like, well, you have two choices. There are two wolves inside of you. <laughs> oh my god. And they are going to kill, you know. <laughs> oh my god. Well, and... I mean, that's something that really stood out to me this read-through was that when Kat's tears mix with her blood, weeping blood down her face, uh, at the end of Ned's arc, you have Liana, another mother who was silenced by, you know, John's birth. <laughs> Rhaegar's dick in John's birth. Uh, wow. Liana was, you know, she was also silenced in a mother who whose agency was wildly taken away from yeah. her. And Catalan's story kind of sings the song of these mothers that George refuses to sing the song of. God damn it. It gets the chance to sing that song and to see the things she was made to do or the things that she forced herself to do and the things her sister was forced to do in the light of this patriarchy and what these choices led to for them and how they suffered. I think something that's so fascinating from Cat as a POV, especially like the reactions around her, are in regards to her motherhood. And for me, one of the key engines of Kat's story, the tension, is her desire to be a mother, but she's not. She's choosing herself in a sense that the the desire to keep going back to Winterfell, to keep babying her babies, that's what she wants to do, but she's not just a mother. She's Hoster's daughters, Edmure's sisters, she's Rob's advisor, she's this de facto counselor in this war effort. So she just has this tension because she she is a mother and she's like self-actualized and identifies and that's a lot of the impetus behind her thoughts but we clearly see her choosing other things and wishing she could just be a mother and i'm not at all wanting to say like uh motherhood is like a lesser position or anything like that i'm just saying like in the context of the conversation around cat the way we see mothers in the series they become mothers and they cease being anything else they're just a mom and we're seeing Kat, mm -hmm. she is a mom, and there is not, you know, it's not just being a mom, but she also has the rest of her life that she's constantly negotiating against. And that tension is just so fascinating from a feminist perspective, because we see her actualize through this. Like, she wants to go back to Winterfell and baby her babies, but her dad's dying, her brother's in chains, like, her son's at war, her other son's at war, her other daughters are prisoners, like, she can't just isolate herself or her motherhood can't just like isolate her actions because she's a full ass person because women and people who carry children and, and raise them they're not just that facet of their life they have lives you know like their lives have meaning not their motherhoods to kind of remix that quote and so it's just so fascinating to see cat just so often dismissed as a mom or just the mom or just the nagging mom because i the one thing that y'all said that shook me this entire kind of cat journey was when y'all said that that cat was Rob's antagonist. Like that shook me for a second. I was like, wait, no, y'all make a point. Like she's she's spitting truth, Your Honor. She's spitting truth. But like just like that tension of the way she wants to live in this world and the way that she doesn't have issues being a mother is still 
satisfying to her and she's still integrated with that, yet that's not the totality of her life. Like Catelyn Tully Stark isn't just five people's moms, sorry, John, but she's also this whole ass other person with all these other aspects of her lives and they are in, they're in conflict because of the external, but they're not in conflict in Kat's POV. She just can't be in two places at once. So when she says she wishes she could, you know, shadow clone juicer herself into five people, well, yeah, because that would be helpful to her kids, but she just has to make these decisions, these compromises, um, not because she's not a mother, but because she's a mother and there are other parts of her life too. Just want to, th to throw that in there. <laughs> One of my cat takes. And she takes such joy in it. That's what it brought her joy, and it's been taken that aspect of her life was where she found happiness because her dad's dying her brothers her brother's like not close to her her husband's dead and like she hasn't been able to build bonds i think it's something george has done strangely or failed that she yeah. hasn't really bond, built any bonds with any women or had any friends but i think um that i mean there there's an aspect of in which deeply patriarchal or extremist like patriarchal societies isolation is a big part of how that gets reinforced in womanhood but anyway um but yeah i mean for that that technically that was the rob pov it was the rob pov chapter not the catlin <laughs> not within the catlin chapter in which we okay, said catlin was the i said I, I did say cat i said cat journey specifically <laughs> don't try to okay. mayhaps and rules <laughs> they, they, were right. mayhaps. they were right they were right success mayhaps and, yeah. and I mean, it does boil back to, especially for Kat, to the, if I look back, I am lost. You know, she can't go back. Yeah. She can't. Can't go forward either, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's got a cha-cha, just got to dance in place. Cha-cha, oh real smooth. <laughs> yep, that is. And that will be covered someday in the epilogues. Someday. That's the dance with dragons, the cha-cha slide. I oh get my it. god, the dance with That's dragons, the, the white girls. <laughs> oh my god, I see. the dance with dragons is the cha-cha slide. Okay, I see. Okay. And that means cast a mere karaoke. All right. Okay. Okay. Well, this is a party idea, but not a party I'm going to. I would not go to this party with you. <laughs> Sounds you like all. a risky party. Yeah. yeah. And in, in a pandemic, Lovato, I feel like they're all risky, you know? Yeah, also true. All risky. Alex, thank you so much for joining us to close out Catelyn forever. Uh, in A Storm of Swords, especially Catelyn 7, please let us know where we can find you at on the internet, around, anything you want to plug. Thank you again so much for having me. It has been an absolute red wedding of a time. Uh, it's been so fun. My name's Alex. You can find me on Twitter, anywhere kind of on the internet, P-A-R-R-A-L-E-X-0889. I'm happy to share cat thoughts with you and anti-patriarchy thoughts with you. That's what I want to plug, down with the patriarchy. Again, it's been such a fucking pleasure to be able to be another one of your guests for a little bit, uh, and then more than just just bringing Ricard Stark's pain to you all. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. You're welcome back anytime. We'll have you again for sure. Uh, Cersei yeah. confirmed? Is that is that it? Is that uh, is that what I... <laughs> I mean, eventually. Mayhaps. 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 Uh... Well, if you want to see some of those cattle intakes, or if you want to make some cattle intakes of your own, 
You can get us those over at our social media. Tweet at us at girlsgonecanon, C-A-N-O-N, or send us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Well, we finally did it. We've righted it. I'm doing the subscriptions. It's your turn, bitch. And, <laughs> and <laughs> along with sending us an email, if you want to keep up with us and get that next episode when we start doing Brienne chapters. Allegedly. Be, <laughs> be sure to subscribe to us on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, where this is all hosted, Pandora, Spotify, iHeartRadio. <sighs> oh, I'm out of practice. Acast, Stitcher, Overcast, and I mean... Anywhere that, like, the RSS feeds have decided that they're going to just put us. Yeah, we're there. We are there. And, hey, if you're not already a patron, we'd love to have you as a patron of Girls Gone Canon at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. We put out a bonus episode every month about something we're reading, whether it's A Song of Ice and Fire, His Dark Materials, or something else. We also have a Discord hmm. where patrons in the Thunder tier and above, $10 and above, can come hang out. And we do a happy hour slash brunch each month this month, 10.30, October 30th, 1 to 3 p.m. Eliana Standard Time or Eliana Time. God. It's Eliana Standard Time. Oh and oh uh, we'll see you there. <laughs> Patreon. As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. And thank you again to another, another one of our hosts. Yeah, I've been another one of your guest hosts, Alex. Yes. Well, we'll see you in Brienne's chapters. Yay, more gender stuff. Woo! <laughs> a theme. A theme. A theme of themes. <laughs> <laughs>